Okay, everybody, welcome to this episode of the Chris and Paul Show. This is going to feel like it's a little bit of a rehash of some kind of some previous podcasts that we've done, but it's not quite that. And we're going to get into the fact that we're going to be covering a topic, as I said, we've covered a couple of times before. But first and foremost, let me welcome... uh, my uh, my colleague and buddy, Chris Beardsley. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks, Paul. Great to be here. So what are we covering today, Chris? <laughs> we were just talking about this, and I wanted to go ahead and get the podcast rolling because sometimes in the, the talks before you start recording, you miss some good stuff. How do you define kind of what we're going to cover today so it doesn't seem like we're being redundant? Yeah, so I think basically we're responding to some questions and confusion in the industry about what exactly is stretch-mediated hypertrophy. At the moment, it feels like everybody is talking past each other because they're all using their own definitions. So I think our purpose today is to try and provide a, a definition that is based in the science, based in the literature, explain why that is, and and just give some implications of that, really. I think it's important to notice the distinction there because somebody's going to say, well, you did a podcast on stretch mediated hypertrophy and we did, but I didn't really realize it probably until the last month or so, as these conversations have become more convoluted, that there's a multitude of people speaking on this topic that can't actually define what it is. Like it's, I think it's almost like for them, like it's a moving target. So kind of an overall picture that I get out of when they start talking about this is that you train a muscle in a stretch position or at a longer length and it just grows better there. Is it, do you think that's like an apt way to describe kind of the feeling that you're getting from, as you put in your article, the hive mind of fitness influencers that are talking about this topic? Yeah. So let me just address that before we kind of go any further. So in, in preparation for this uh, <laughs> podcast, I kind of pulled together a framework of the literature, um, put some links together, did some explanations. Uh, we'll pro- probably put the link into the um, podcast notes. We will. So people can find that. And basically, it's just a Medium article where you can read through everything that we're going to be going through on this on this call. But essentially, where I think, um, where I think we can start is do our best, our best to um, characterize what we think is the definition of stretch mediated hypertrophy that most people are tending to use at the moment, at least um, maybe not most people, but perhaps most of our critics, people who are trying to present a different point of view to us at the moment. Let's, I mean, I think I started my article with this with this attempt, which is to try and characterize what their definition is. Um, and I think really what people are saying is essentially it's it's all of the muscle growth that happens after strength training um, with a muscle in a lengthened position or a, a, yeah, an elongated lengthened or, or stretched position exercise. So essentially, we do a, an exercise in a stretched position, lengthened position, elongated position, whatever nomenclature we want to use, and it, and it produces some muscle growth. And all of that muscle growth is being characterized as, as stretch-mediated hypertrophy. And I think, is that is that your um, kind of understanding as well, Paul? Yeah, I mean, pretty much... I have to go by the fact that I have to read through the commentary or, you know, I don't feel like these have been what I would consider 
um, respectful discussions because I feel like that it, it, there's been a lot of like kind of almost like they've made it like a like a personal attack thing, like stretch mediated hypertrophy as part of their character and being. And so therefore, if you say anything about this, um, somehow you're questioning in, you know, that, you know, them as a person. And it just kind of, I think, devolved into this whole, um, where everybody's going to attack each other because we have different beliefs. And then from there, what I think has happened is if you say, what the data actually says, or you point out the research and say, well, this is currently, <clears throat> I'm not saying none of this could change over time. Um, there could be, and we'll get into actually wh why that could be. Um, like later in the article, I sent you the, the one study yesterday. Um, I hope that we'll like kind of highlight because one of the things that has been said is, and we'll get started. How we want to do this though, I'm all over the place, but I, I'll get there. Um, is I, we talked about this, the art, your medium article, first off, number one, it's, it's amazing. It really covers pretty much all the research related to this topic that we have almost at the time. I mean, unless you're going to go all the way back to the 1950s and get all of the Titan research from the fifties and sixties that we have too, but it covers pretty much everything that we have. It's a 30, 30 plus minute read. And it really, really compresses all of the current data, how it all works kind of into this topic. But what has been kind of leveled at us is that we kind of made this up and, and that we decided. We decided that sarcomerogenesis is basically the adaptation from stretch-mediated hypertrophy and that the proxy is fascicle-length measurements and that nobody agrees with that and there's no scientists out there that agree with that. And or that it's there's out people out there who say there's just no, um, it's just kind of up in the wind. So. I guess that's kind of the thing is like, well, my question is, if that's not how it works, then please provide me something from an adaptation standpoint that says this is how it works, rather than just saying, I, you said this, I think probably more than a year ago, you said what most of these people think is I, I, I train the muscle at a longer length and abracadabra, it grows larger. I'm like, that. that's not telling us anything. Like, if we're talking the, the physiological mechanisms that occur from training the muscle at a longer length, what are they? How do they happen? How long do they happen? So forth and so on. Well, nobody has those answers. And then when we give those answers, they get really mad. Do you think that sums it up? Well, that's kind of what I see happening. So I guess just if, if, if you know, if anybody's listening to this at this point who, who disagrees with us, uh, disagrees with what we're, with what we're going to say, then please do find a way to you know, advise us what your definition of stretch-mediated hypertrophy is, and if you feel like it, tell us how it works. But what we're seeing, what we're seeing is that um, people are using this idea that stretch-mediated hypertrophy is simply all of the muscle mass increases that happen um, in muscles as a result of training them at long length. So it's just literally the the entirety of the muscle growth is stretch mediated hypertrophy. Right, so, let me let me can let me provide a little context here and I, I this uh, is that I hope that this will help. So there's been a multitude of times where you've posted up some infographics that has looked at training a muscle at a longer length where they did fascicle length measurements, which is you is what you and I look at because of the fact that we believe in sarcomerogenesis and that's how it occurs. We train a muscle in stretch and that's the adaptation that happens biologically. And that 
basically the best way to look at that is through fast cooling measurements. So did we get a fast cooling measurement increase or did we not, so forth and so on. And then if we did, we can generally summarize that stretch of mediated hypertrophy occurs. So when you have posted up infographics, say here's an exercise, here's a muscle, they measure the fast cooling and they didn't see fast coolings. The comment from the people who believe in the magical uh, abracadabra stretch mediated hypertrophy stuff say, but it still grew. And you, your response is always the same. That's generally what happens when you strength train a muscle, you know, in, in exercising. And I always laugh at that because I'm like, there's the disconnect right there. Is that they think because it grew at all, it was because of stretch. That's what we've been trying to get at. We're like, so you think all of the muscle growth just came from stretch. It doesn't matter where it occurred or how it occurred or whatever. If you train a muscle at a longer length, that's what they'll say. Well, it still grew. And we're like, yeah, of course it did. And they're like, well, then how are you denouncing stretch-mediated stretch hypertrophy? And we're like, because it's a very specific type of adaptation. So essentially, we're kind of walking around this problem in different, thinking about it in different aspects. But fundamentally, I think what we're trying to do is understand the definition of stretch-mediated hypertrophy that um, our critics are using. And I think what they're using is this idea that any hypertrophy that occurs after strength training a muscle at a long length is stretch mediated hypertrophy. Yes. So when I walked through, when I was writing my article and constructing the kind of the flow of, of thought process uh, in that article, I actually went a step back from this and I said, well, okay, hang on a moment. What's hypertrophy? Mm-hmm. What do we mean by hypertrophy? So I went and I collected some definitions and ultimately pretty much everybody who is actually kind of working at the, the kind of the, the, the highest level of, of, of hypertrophy science is, is using the definition of single fiber growth. They don't really use hypertrophy to talk about muscle mass increases, although that generally is used in kind of most places. The definition of hypertrophy is single fiber growth. And that's really interesting because they then go on to exclude stuff like hyperplasia, um, which is problematic when you want to talk about stretch mediated hypertrophy because suddenly everybody wants to talk about you know chickens and quail. And I was going to say, please say chickens. I think it's yeah. so funny when you say chickens because it's, everyone it's... wants to talk about that and say, "Oh, let's talk about that as far as stretch mediated hypertrophy is concerned." I'm no. like, Hang on a second. The word <laughs> hypertrophy in your definition excludes hyperplasia. Now you can look at um, Brad Schoenfeld's review, a famous one of mechanisms hypertrophy. You can, look at review. you can look at anybody's review who is operating at those levels and you'll find exactly the same terminology. It excludes hyperplasia. In so fact, it explicitly excludes Explicitly excludes hyperplasia. I mean, it also inevitably excludes stuff like collagen and extracellular water and anything else you want, or intramuscular fat, all of that I, stuff. Exactly. And I think that the, the point of like what we're trying to get at there with that is that Hypertrophy, when you say hypertrophy, it's a very specific thing and it needs to exclude other things and only include specific things. And that almost seems to be lost. It's like, well, if we're talking about hypertrophy, we're talking about something in the like that's happening in the fiber. Right? Yeah, exactly. So we then we then we then kind of say, well, okay, you've defined hypertrophy. What does stretch mediated hypertrophy? Well, it's the hypertrophy that occurs as a result of that muscle fiber experiencing stretch. And the reason I say that muscle fiber is because if we look at um, 
again, you know, some of the best reviews on this kind of thing, they all agree that hyper, well, maybe not all of them, but, you know, kind of certainly um, the ones that we spend our time reading uh, will emphasize that hypertrophy is a fiber specific process. The fiber experiences a stimulus, the fiber then grows as a result of experiencing that stimulus. So what we're saying is that stretch mediated hypertrophy must occur because a fiber experiences a particular stimulus and then grows as a result of experiencing that stimulus. And what's more, the stimulus must be a stretch stimulus. So what we, one of the things that we, we said on the start that we both agreed on is a pretty good idea is that we'll kind of like um, flesh out your article in this because I, I think it really gives a top to bottom overview of what we're trying to get out here and kind of keep us on point. The, the only thing I want to do here before we start on that particular piece is <clears throat> after you sent me your your the article you wrote for Medium, and by the way, yes, we will 100% include the link for that in the, in the podcast notes, and I highly encourage everybody out get, to get out there, even if it takes you a few hours, and you're like, Paul and Chris speak a, a language that's hard for me to understand sometimes. If you can go understand this article, you will completely understand all of the data that we have at the moment on contraction mode hypertrophy especially stretch-mediated hypertrophy. And it will give you a very clear picture of what it is that we're talking about when we look at this. Because, it, it, yeah, it's been pretty maddening because you and I do, we've, we do the arguments where we both play devil's advocate back and forth with each other. And we say, well, if somebody says this, then one of us will say this. And in other words, it, it can't all... It can't all add up because when we start talking about Titan and passive tension and the length of time that happens and the adaptations that occur, none of the stuff they say can actually work if you put it up next to the current data and the way we are, we're looking at it right now from the actual scientific standpoint. So I'm going to read off a couple of paragraphs here and then we're going to let's get right into your medium article after that. But this is from um, just a, a study looking at. The torque angle relationships of shoulder external ro uh, rotators. Uh, there was a pilot study. Um, it was a, a Tim Butterfield um, research article. But I, I just want to get to this part right here in the early part of the article before he goes into the uh, all of the stuff they did with the rotator cuff strengthening. And that and this is this is because the reason why I'm going to do this is because I've heard that we decided. This is what stretch media hypertrophy is, and there, no scientists agree with us or believe there's a consensus or anything like that. So I want to read this. Myofibrogenesis is muscle fiber hypertrophy in the axial direction and increases the cross-sectional area of the fiber because sarcomeres are added in parallel. Sarcomeres are force-producing elements, and the forces produced by them are additive in parallel. Therefore, increases in muscle cross-sectional area are a good predictor for peak isometric force, which is easily tested in the clinic and used as an objective criterion for return to play after injury. Muscle fiber activation and the production of internal forces are essential stimuli to optimize exercise-induced myofibrogenesis. However, if a muscle fiber is also subjected to an external load that results in positive strain or stretch of the fiber, hypertrophy will also occur in the longitudinal direction, increasing fiber length due to sarcomerogenesis. 
sarcomere genesis or the addition of sarcomeres in a series within a muscle fiber has been studied extensively in vitro, in situ, and in vivo models. Although immobilizing a muscle in a lengthened position results in an increase in serial sarcomere number, this addition is reversed if the stimulus is removed. Subsequently, the lack of tension sensing in the sarcomeres returns to serial sarcomere number to pre-stretched numbers within weeks and demonstrates the plasticity of sarcomere number and its relationship to joint angle and muscle tension. Now, to somebody who does not follow us or isn't up to speed, that might have sounded really high level. To that was like spoke. That was like second grade. When I read that, I was like, "Yes, totally." You, I'm sure, as I went through that in your head, you're like, "Yep, yep, 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 yep." But all of the things he just said there basically is when we do a concentric contraction, we're going to have cross bridging that's going to happen between the acromyosin and that we're going to have mechanical tension and that we're going to have the very specific adaptation that occurs, which is going to be sarcomeres in parallel. It's going to have a, we can measure that through uh, measure, measuring uh, cross-sectional area and that if we have a stretch position where the fibers uh, are elongated, but what we're really going to be looking at is, and we'll get into that, is the lengthening of the sarcomeres. And there, there's an addition of sarcomeres in a series related to that. So we're looking at that stretch mediated hypertrophy. We're stretching it out. So as I go through that one, that to me, when Butterfield wrote that out, was probably the easiest, most concise way that I've ever heard it explained. And he put all the links in there. So, um, but I, I do like the 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 amount of uh, how much you cover this in this article is pretty crazy. So let's actually, let's get into your article because I think there's, like I said, there's no better way to look at all the stuff that you kind of combine here into this one and to start off. So the first, the first question you have here is what is stretch mediated hypertrophy? And you have the wrong definition here in the, kind of there are still your, the, the, your word, the hive mind in the fitness industry, social media influencers have started to refer to stretch mediated hypertrophy as the increase in muscle mass that occurs after training with a stretch position exercise. Uh, there's a number of problems using this definition. So start, go ahead and start there and kind of define what you've got here is hypertrophy. And like we were talking about there and kind of expand on that as to what hypertrophy really is. Yeah. So, um, in terms of in terms of where we are with 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 stretch mediated hypertrophy, what, what I'm arguing there is that um, the problem with defining stretch mediated hypertrophy is the as the muscle mass increase that occurs after strength training with a, a lengthened position exercise. The problem with that, firstly, is that we're not talking about muscle mass changes. We're talking about the increase in single muscle fiber size, whether it's transverse um, or, or longitudinal. Uh, and, and therefore, you've got to exclude hyperplasia straight away. So straight away, you're losing the chicken and the quail and all of the other avian studies. But they like, they, you, they like to list that in when they start talking about stretch. Absolutely, it just betrays the fact that they don't even, you know, they don't even read the most basic reviews in this in this area, which are giving us the definitions of hypertrophy itself. The second problem is exactly the the the, the issue addressed by uh, the article that you just quoted. Um, and that's that when we are doing a strength training exercise, um, it doesn't matter whether it's a long length or a short length, it's always going to have some um, muscular contraction that produces myofibrillar addition. So we produce cross bridges and those cross bridges produce force. Those 
force, that tension that that force produces is concentric in nature. It pulls the muscle fiber to a shorter length. And that force is detected by various sensors and that creates um, hypertrophy. Now, nothing of what I've just said is particularly contentious. Um, the issue is the issue is that people are not paying attention to the fact that that concentric force means that it cannot be defined as a stretching force. It is not a stretching force. It is a contracting force, contracting. So therefore, the muscle fiber is getting shorter. So if you produce that cross bridge, if you produce those cross bridges and create mechanical tension at, short, at long muscle lengths, you are creating hypertrophy at long muscle lengths in a way that has nothing to do with stretch. It's contraction-mediated hypertrophy. It's not stretch-mediated, it's contraction-mediated. Contraction-mediated. Contraction <clears throat> yep. So ultimately, when we have that situation, we are creating hypertrophy in those exercises because of contractions. We cannot then say that all of the hypertrophy even if we define hypertrophy correctly, whether it's muscle mass or hypertrophy, it doesn't actually matter at this point. But if we create some hypertrophy with those strength training exercises, we're not doing it by stretch. So you have to exclude some hypertrophy. This is the point, I think, if, 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 if nobody <clears throat> listens to the rest of the podcast, if they listen to nothing else. Just get to just this part. Get to this part, this part, where basically we're just explaining that if you do any strength training exercise, whether it's at a long length, a middle length, or a, or a very short length, you will produce hypertrophy because of the contraction. Contraction is not stretch. It's the opposite. So you're creating hypertrophy from a mechanism which cannot be included in your definition of stretch-mediated hypertrophy if you want words to have meanings. Mm -hmm. So ultimately... So, so let, me, let, me, let me do this in a practical one. I'm doing an overhead tricep extension, and we're going to do a study that's, you know... We're going to look at the fascicle length measurements and the cross-sectional area of the triceps long head. And I lower it down and then in the eccentric contraction, and then I raise it in the concentric contraction. And at the end of the study, I do have an increase in cross-sectional area of the long head. That happened because there's a concentric contraction happening in, that, in the, the exercise. Well, until we until we work through the rest of this article, then strictly speaking, at the moment we can't tell. All we know is there's some hypertrophy happened because of the strength training exercise. That's why when people kind of start interacting with me about this on on social media, I will generally respond with a very bland statement, which is yes, strength training generally does cause hypertrophy. What is the exact point that you're trying to get across? And that's when the conversation, as you've pointed out, breaks down because there isn't really a way for them to move forward from that without a model, and they don't have a model as far as we can tell. So what they we're kind get of getting mad at, at... They just get mad at hours. They just get angry at hours. So <laughs> what we've got is this situation where we've clearly shown that strength training produces hypertrophy from a contraction and potentially also from a stretch. But if you are doing strength training, you cannot immediately tell what the source of each amount of hypertrophy that you're creating is coming from, unless you have a model that tells you what that is. Now, often people will say, well, okay, how about we just kind of say, well, we've got the, the two um, kind of arms of this study. One group is training with a long length, one, one group is training with a short length. Yeah, and we'll so basically that's all, take the difference hold, between hold the two. Hold your thought real quick. Yeah, hold your thought real quick. That one, that's the other one is like immediately when you post this up, they'll say we don't have a short position 
exercise to contrast this against, right? Because that it's become a, let's con compare a long muscle length movement to a short muscle length movement, and which one has more hypertrophy. That's that's the other one there. Didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to put that, that's the other argument that pops up. I forgot about that one, because I don't find that one relevant. Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. Um, you know, I mean, I think ultimately it's kind of, um, it's not a bad starting point for many for many kind of strength training studies but you have to measure all of the muscles that are working at the joint if you don't measure every single muscle that's working at the joint you might as well just throw the study in the bin because you have to actually take into account the fact that some muscles will work at longer lengths some muscles will work at shorter lengths now i know we've also been criticized for popularizing the principle of neuromechanical matching i'm just kind of at a, just pausing a moment here yeah i yeah, really we... find it quite i really find it quite flattering that people think we make this stuff up or I make this stuff up. I, yeah. I'm literally just popularizing what scientists have already kind of documented in you know kind of hundreds of other papers across the exercise science literature. I'm not I just like of, it I think it's I think hilarious. Because, One of the things I've talked about multiple times through our, our podcast is and just in private conversations is is that we'll start researching data and looking at these mechanisms and this is something i've had a question for you and your answer is i don't know is i'll say chris this this paper is from the 80s and then the other one's from the 90s and the, the other one's from 1970 whatever and i'm like but this has been repeatable for a long time and it's completely ignored by the exercise science community whether it's fatigue or whether it's some mechanism we're looking at and then the exercise science community has not only ignored it, but then when we bring it up, they say they're just making it up. And I'm like, what? That's that's the thing that's come up lately is like Chris and Paul have decided that this does this and they've made this up. And neuro, everything from neuromechanical matching to calcium ion related fatigue to any of these things, we just make up. Like I, I call it fatigue stuff interference you know mechanisms and then another guy said they don't these things don't really exist and i'm like what so somehow we've just kind of finagled all of these fake physiological processes that don't really happen neuromechanical matching is not real um uh stretch media hypertrophy sarcomere in a series none of that stuff nobody believes that there's no scientist oh wait a minute there's like decades of data that actually talks about this and then when you got into really researching muscle physiology at a deep level these are the things that you found that scientists were looking at and you're like oh look at all these scientists out here they agree this is probably how this works and there seems to be a consensus amongst the scientists they keep researching these particular areas because hey it looks like this is what works and then you and i are here in 2023 going hey everybody look at the last few decades of all of this research and everybody goes you guys just made that shit up that's pretty much what these morons keep saying, and I'm just going to say at this point, because I'm like, dude, here's the data. We've given it to you. You've got, like, I don't know, 10 years of Medium articles or whatever that you're going on now. Um, and, like, here's the data. Go look at it. And then they literally are, like, out here just making shit up. Just, like, we're just out here making shit up. I think I wonder whether it's because there are so many other kind of um, people out there making stuff up um, and giving it fancy-sounding names. And they kind of hear us using the term neuromechanical matching, and maybe they assume that we've made that term up. And <laughs> absolutely haven't. You can see links to it in the article. You can, if you just Google ago. it, you'll find all of the respiratory research that they were using. Uh, that when when some one day sometimes it goes, hey, in the respiratory system, we see that the central nervous system allocates motor units 
based on leverages by respiratory muscles. And they go, hey, well, maybe what if the rest of the, the body works that way? And then pretty pretty much as a consensus, we found that that tends to be the case. I've heard people say, uh, I have, it's it's either, or I have doubts about it, or I think there's holes in it or whatever. I'm like, that's cool. Provide, I, I know, but I've heard that. And from people that are supposedly well-respected, and I'm like, well, then provide another way, because why would the body allocate, why would the, the brain, the central motor command, allocate motor unit recruitment to muscles that don't have leverage? We'll get into that. But anyway, apparently we've made all of these things up. But the model's not real. It's not yeah. based on. So just rest assured we haven't made this stuff up. And you can basically just either Google it or you can look at the links in the article. But yeah, so. Where were we going with that anyway? So we were talking about... I, I, I think that it's just been a case where I think over the last few weeks that it's just been a barrage of stuff people have thrown at us. And um, I guess a lot of stuff people are talking behind behind the scenes, uh, you know, uh, about this stuff. And then they, they come back and say, um, you know, that we've either like made these things up, which is such a weird thing. But again, in the Medium article we're going to post up, it's got the link to all of the research going through it. So we were back to defining, uh, of still, we're still defining like, like hypertrophy. And I think that really is a, an important part of looking at how we're going to lay the groundwork so that people can really understand, um, like what is really going on here with this topic. So kind of like in the summary part of this one, stretch mediated hypertrophy only refers to the increase in size of the single muscle fibers that are stimulated by stretching them. Uh, and strength training produces contraction mediated hypertrophy, uh, irrespective of whether it is performed with contraction position exercises or stretch position exercises. Therefore, the muscle growth that occurs after training with a stretch position exercise does not solely comprise stretch mediated hypertrophy. That's a, if there's any one thing, as you said, people need to take away from this is that if you have muscle growth that occurs from training the muscle a longer length, it doesn't mean that all of that muscle growth occurred from stretch mediated hypertrophy. That's not the definition of stretch mediated hypertrophy. Like that's, as you said, when people say that, you're just like, yes, generally muscles grow from strength training exercises. That's how that works. And right now, what the, the whole stretch mediated crew is saying is that everything goes grows better abracadabra because you train it at a longer length but there's very specific adaptations um that occur from that so the right definition which you just gave yeah the right definition um that you're getting into here um as you talked about okay so in the article you talk about the fact that we have to exclude hyperplasia um and I don't know even I guess when I when I um when I seen you a text this past week you initially just like exploded and like why are people sending me all these stuff on chicken studies and I started laughing so hard and I said what are you talking about chicken studies I go you mean the quail study and you're like yeah it's just a small chicken <laughs> so, so the if for anyone who doesn't know one of the things that's been kind of included in this conversation is hyperplasia and hyperplasia is the addition it's literally the addition of new it's a genesis of the new fiber it's a whole new fiber it's a whole new muscle fiber we have never seen that in human studies it doesn't mean it doesn't happen we've just never seen it in human studies there's one study before you do that i can you got that paul correction face going there's one study that 
kind of like they try to kind of poke around at it. it's a powerlifting one or or I think it's an anabolics one that people weren't anabolics. I think it's an anabolic steroid study where they had some people that were on anabolics that had more um, they had a greater degree of muscle fibers and they speculated that it could have happened due to hyperplasia, but there's just no way to prove that. But generally the hypertrophy reviews, all of the hypertrophy reviews that currently exist right now exclude hyperplasia. That they don't I, I was just going to jump in and say it doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter whether it happens or not. That's not the conversation. The point is the word hypertrophy excludes hyperplasia. Hyper excludes it. If you want to talk about stretch-mediated muscle growth that includes hyperplasia, go ahead, but don't talk about stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Label it as something different. Talk about stretch-mediated muscle growth and bring hyperplasia into the conversation. But you can't use the term stretch-mediated hypertrophy and talk about hyperplasia. They're just not compatible. The terminology won't let you do that. Yep. In the same way that you can't talk about contraction-mediated muscle growth because stretch is not a contraction. Stretch involves stretching the muscle fiber. That's what it says on the tin. So you can't have a contraction shortening the muscle fiber, producing muscle growth, and then uh, kind of try and lump that into a, a definition of stretch-mediated hypertrophy. It's just the definition won't let you do that. Um, if you're changing the definition, you're going to use... You, well, you can't. You've got to use new terminology. So ultimately, you can't use the word stretch and you can't use the word hypertrophy. So, <laughs> you know, it, there's not really much left in room left in the definition for you to work with. But where I've started from in the article is that um, stretch-mediated hypertrophy means an increase in muscle fiber size as a result of a stretch stimulus. So the reality is, and this comes back to a conflict that uh, you experienced in the last couple of weeks, which is that um, you made the point that passive static stretching is a really good source of information for understanding how stretch-mediated hypertrophy works. And you kind of ran into this opposition where people said, well, that's nothing to do with stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Stretch-mediated <laughs> hypertrophy is about strength training at long muscle lengths. And you kind of had that kind of response where... <laughs> Like, Anytime that happens, I don't initially even know how to respond because I'm like, it tells me something I said. And I think people think I'm being an a-hole by explain, explaining it this way or saying it this way. And I'm like, I can't have a debate with any of these people because they literally, there's so there's such massive gaps in their understanding of the physiology. We can't even get there. In other words, let's say you and I decided we didn't agree on something one day. But we could discuss all of the, the reasons why we think one thing or another because we have this kind of understanding of how all of these mechanisms work. But when somebody tells me or says something like, that study is a stretching study, so I don't know what that has to do with anything, I just sit there with that blank look on my face because I... I, I do the the woman meme that does the, the trigonometry stuff like all over it and because I'm trying to figure out all of the places this person has gaps in their knowledge base that doesn't allow them to arrive at having an intelligent conversation about this topic. So that leads us, that's like the segue literally into the next part of your article. And that means that static stretching studies are far better sources of information regarding stretch-mediated hypertrophy than strength training studies that involved either comparisons between partial and full range of motion, partial lengthened partials and full range of motion exercises, or that involve comparisons between contracted position or contracted mediated hypertrophy and stretch position exercises because stretch static stretching is, this is a really, really 
I hope everybody's really hung in there to this because it's a really important part. Static stretching only involves the stretch stimulus that produces stretch-mediated hypertrophy, while full ROM and stretch position exercises involve both stretch-mediated hypertrophy and contraction-mediated. You know, we're going to start talking about contraction-mediated hypertrophy. Mm, once that catches on, once that catches on, no, I people. Know. I know. It, would be, it, would, yeah, it, it actually yeah. would make a difference because people will no, go, is that contraction mediated hypertrophy or is it stretch mediated hypertrophy? Yes. So, and is it, and it's very difficult to discern which stimulus is responsible for muscle growth um, as such types of strength training uh, generate. So really important part there that you're getting at is when we do, we look at these um, static stretching studies is that we're just looking at, we end up seeing one specific adaptation that occurs because we do not have contraction concentric contraction mediated hypertrophy massive massive difference there and also very important to distinguish the adaptations that we get that's where you go i was okay with that. so um <laughs> so let's we, let's talk about that if we look at the passive kind of static stretching literature in in animals now in the article i argue basically that if we're starting off with hypertrophy as a single fiber adaption, then by definition, the best quality data we're going to get is going to be studies that actually measure single muscle fibers. Now, generally speaking, 99% of the data we've got that measures single muscle fibers is in animals. Now, Okay, so see right there, straight away, you're disqualified. Yep, straight away. They don't count because they're animal studies. That's the, the reality other is that most of what we understand about hypertrophy comes from animal models. Comes from animals first, either first or it's a continuation of them looking at um, hypertrophy on, in rat studies. I mean, that's pretty much the case. I mean, that's just how it works. I mean, essentially, we're getting the, the quality of information is, is actually we're, we're winning quite a lot of value because we're looking at the fiber itself. Every time you switch and kind of look at human studies, then you're ultimately changing muscle uh, kind of on a macro level and you're measuring, sorry, you're taking measurements on a macro level. You're not really getting into the, uh, the detail of what actually is changing inside the muscle fiber very often. And so we, we have gaps in our knowledge. Now, we'll come later on to talk about the human static stretching literature. And the reality is that it fits perfectly with what we see in the animal models, but just kind of stating up front that there is a reason that we look at the animal models. It's not because we're looking for something that we want to prove and it's not in the human studies. It's because that's the best source of information about the thing that we're trying to talk about, which is stretch mediated increases in single muscle fiber size. Very quickly, there's a number of different animal models you can use. You can use um, the limb immobilization, which is basically just um, holding a stretch in a very long position for a very long period of time. Not necessarily very, very long. It could just be a couple of days, but um, it is obviously longer than what you would do in a passive static stretch. There's distraction, which is kind of a little, well, it's a lot more invasive. It basically is the surgical process where you lengthen a bone. Now, this surgical process initially doesn't actually lengthen the bone very much. It just creates the possibility for you to kind of lengthen the bone gradually over a period of uh, kind of days or even weeks. And so what happens is because of the way the muscle bulges away from the bone, you get a lot bigger change in muscle length compared to what you get in bone length. So very small changes in bone length of a couple of percent might produce 10, 15 percent increases in kind of muscle length. So you can see really big changes happening really quickly. 
So that's distraction. Then you've got stuff like um, tendon transfer, tissue expansion. Tissue, tissue expansion is basically the same as distraction, but without actually changing the bone. They just put a tiny little kind of um, sort of piece of um, expandable um, material between the bone and the muscle, which pushes the muscle away from the bone, and that causes the muscle to increase in length. So there's various different animal models they can use, but ultimately all of them are basically just trying to uh, lengthen the muscle and then uh, or essentially stretch the muscle and then watch what happens. So from our perspective, most of these studies take measurements of single muscle fibers, and that gives us a lot of really useful data to work with. Yep. So you actually, you go over that in um, pretty much the whole article. Um, and then now I think we can actually talk about the fact that when we look at any of these the, these animal studies, when we're looking at when they look, when they do distraction studies or when they do longer length uh, muscle studies where they basically put the animal in a position where the muscle is, is more lengthened and it's held there, um, or they do the distraction stuff, um, what is the adaptation that all of these are repeatable? And again, this is the links for these are are going to be in the Medium article, but there's a ton of studies on this. And what's the adaptation that we see at the muscle fiber level that occurs when they do this? Every single study shows huge, huge increases in sarcomere number. We're getting sarcomerogenesis in, on, a, on an enormous scale. In terms of addition of uh, increases in, in cross-sectional area, it's Basically, it can be nothing, it can be a, a reduction, it can be a slight increase, and there's, there's no kind of consistent pattern as regards changes in muscle fiber cross-sectional area. But as regards length, huge, huge increases in number of sarcomas in series. What happens to pinnation ankle generally when they're... <laughs> generally, the animal studies don't measure that. Sometimes, very, very rarely they do, but generally speaking, we don't get a pinnation angle uh, change in, the, uh, sorry, measurement. Uh, in those studies. Do, what happens when we look at pination angle changes when we do these static stretching sessions on, on people? Generally, it decreases. Mm. Why is that? <laughs> well, it's basically just because you're um, increasing fascicle length. Okay. So, in animal studies, when they have a static, when they hold a, the muscle at a longer length for an extended period of time, or they increase the bone length over a period of, say, days or weeks or months, whatever they're doing, there's one particular adaptation that keeps occurring over and over again. What is it called? Sarcomerogenesis. And what is that? Um, longitudinal hypertrophy. Okay. So that happens where? By adding sarcomers in series to the end of the muscle fiber. I'm I'm doing that thing where I'm gonna. I'm, 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 see, gonna, I'm trying to figure out where you're going with this. Yeah, I'm doing, okay. So when you see that, how long does that does that have like a timetable on it for how long that that tends to occur? Can it go on for basically forever, or is it does it happen quickly? So it's extraordinarily fast. So I think the fastest um, uh, that I've seen a study measure this in four days. Four days was enough to uh, produce really quite substantial increases in sarcomere number. And I think from memory, that was a limb immobilization study. So just moving the limb to a maximum physiological range of motion, leaving it there for a couple of days, and you come back and you get really big changes happening super, super quickly. In terms of, did you want to jump in? I was going to say, so sarcomerogenesis, when you, when they, when they, in the animal studies, when they stretch the, the muscle out, 
um, and these static stretches, they tend to see sarcomeres added in a series very quickly. Yeah, it's amazingly fast adaption, absolutely. Okay. In terms of the um, how long the adaption carries on going for, this depends, and this is a really crucial point, this depends on whether you are changing the range of motion or the, the stretched position that you're using. So if you just move to a maximum physiological range of motion, or if you do a bone distraction study and you just set uh, the new range of motion, you fix it and you don't change it ever again, then what will happen is you've got about two weeks of adaption and that two weeks will generally produce a huge increase in sarcomas in series and then suddenly or not suddenly it will gradually die down and then after about two weeks you've got nothing and so it's really huge adaption at the very beginning and then it just tapers away to nothing over these two weeks uh, kind of this two-week period if on the other hand you keep doing with the distraction model you can do this you can just kind of turn a screw and increase a very tiny 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 amount like fractions of a millimeter every day um, you can just kind of gradually increase the length of the bone and that increases the length of the muscle. As long as you keep doing that, you keep getting the adaption. So basically, it shows us very clearly that simply stretching the muscle to a long length isn't going to be enough to keep creating the adaption. You actually have to keep stretching to longer and longer and longer muscle lengths. That's where I was going with That's yeah, what's where absolutely. I was going with everything I was asking you. So, so once those adaptations occur rapidly and you have the fiber that's been moved out to a specific length over and over and over again. Do those adaptions kind of stop occurring at that point? So if you if you don't change the range of motion, if you don't change if you don't change the, the range of motion or length of the fiber, do the adaptations stop occurring after how long? Two weeks. Okay. Why do they stop occurring? So this is this is kind of the the, the really exciting thing that was kind of. Um, that came out of this literature body really, which is that ultimately it's the sarcomere length that determines the passive tension stimulus for the adaption. So if the sarcomere is um, below, I think in, 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 in rodent models, if the sarcomere length is below 2.7 micrometers, um, then basically you're not gonna get a uh, enough uh, tension from that sarcomere to produce the stimulus that then creates the adaption. If you stretch it past that critical threshold, then it will actually create the stimulus that you need. So if you've got a lot of sarcomeres in series, because you've been adding sarcomeres in series, then none of the sarcomeres will, will be stretched past this critical threshold when you reach your maximum range of motion, and therefore you don't get an adaption. In contrast, if you then stretch to a longer length, because you now created a new environment or you you're doing a distraction study, so you turn the screw again and you increase the length of the muscle. Now the sarcomeres do breach that critical threshold. They create the necessary tension uh, with that stretch going past that particular point, and that then creates the adaption that we are looking for, which again, just to repeat myself, is sarcomeregenesis. So the, the sarcomere has to actually be stretched out to kind of a specific range for it to continue creating those stretch-mediated adaptations that cause sarcomerogenesis, right? Correct. The sarcomere <clears throat> itself has to be stretched. You can't stretch a muscle. Now, a muscle doesn't have the ability to detect its own length as far as hypertrophy is concerned. It does, obviously, for other purposes, but not as far as um, a hypertrophy stimulus is concerned. It's a muscle fiber-specific phenomenon. Muscle fibers have sarcomeres. Sarcomeres, uh, sarcomere length is what determines the tension that those fibers produce during stretch. Yeah, I think there's like Sorry, spindles. There's spindles that give feedback to the actual fiber length stuff, but we don't really 
give a crap spindles about that. Spindles are outside of muscle fibers. So a muscle spindle is basically a rudimentary muscle fiber that's adapted for a different purpose. It lies outside mm-hmm. of a muscle fiber. It communicates uh, within the central nervous system. It doesn't interact with what the muscle fibers are doing. So this is another reason why we have to start the conversation. No, I, with I brought that one up because... Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. because if, if the nervous system can detect the length of the fibers through spindles, but it doesn't have anything to do with the adaptations that are going to occur for hypertrophy. Because muscle stuff. fiber hypertrophy is an intrinsic process because it's exactly. about the individual fiber. This is why people have to start from the beginning and understand what hypertrophy means. Because if they think about hypertrophy as just a kind of amorphous change inside of the whole muscle because of magic pre- things that happen so actually be- i didn't realize i was going to do this but i'm having fun with this because what i'm doing is i'm quizzing you and i'm just getting you to fill in all the dots so so let, let's say that we've now gotten to six weeks and we're not getting we're not getting the sarcomere stretched out to pass that 2.7 range right but that's that's because of the fact that we have so many in a series now that when we move to that specific joint angle the sarcomere not getting stretched out because now there's so many in a series that each individual one doesn't reach uh, that link that we need for it to create what? what what's going on there? So this is where we have to kind of start talking about titan because <laughs> basically when we stretch a sarcomere, titan is what produces the passive tension. Now, so what's pe- titan? People, well, as I said, it's it's basically just the part inside the sarcomere that resists being stretched. So ultimately, a lot of people kind of skip reading the Titan literature and then kind of again claim that I'm making stuff up. But just just go and if people just go and look at some of the Titan studies, what they'll find is that there's been some really nice, well done investigations showing that if you stop Titan from functioning inside a muscle fiber, you don't get the passive tension you're expecting to see when you start stretching it. If, on the other hand, you start pulling all the collagen off, which everyone says is where the passive tension comes from, you still don't really change the amount of passive tension the fiber is producing. So, Do we get some, do we get some passive tension from collagen? There's a little bit coming from collagen, but the majority is coming from Titan. So if we, if we kind of pull on the sarcomere, if we pull on the muscle fiber, then ultimately Titan is producing that, that resistance. And Titan basically has a very compliant segment to it, which can elongate without producing much force. And it has a stiffer segment, which produces a lot of force. So if you start stretching a sarcomere, initially, if you're below the critical kind of threshold length of the sarcomere, you're basically just stretching the compliant part of Titan. And it's not really doing anything. When you get past that critical threshold and you've kind of got to the end of your ability to pull on that compliant segment, it's reached its maximum length. You've now got to kind of stretch the stiff part of Titan. That's when you're going to get the force production. So ultimately, this is really just the passive length tension relationship. I mean, it's nothing more complicated than that. Again, documented in every textbook that's probably ever been written. I was going to say, I feel like that what you just described is the length of tension relationship. It's the passive length tension relationship. It's literally nothing more complicated than that. So any basic physiology textbook will give you that picture. It probably won't if it's old enough. If it's an older one, it won't tell you it's tightened. You just made this up. It kind of is basically how the fiber is producing tension inside the sarcomere. Beardsley, so fiction, Beardsley fiction. You just made this whole thing up. There's nothing out there that I'm really that not that inventive. So, <laughs> so Titan is basically just sitting inside the sarcomere, and as you stretch the sarcomere initially, you don't get any force production. If you stretch past this critical length, you do get force production. Wait, so hold on. If hold you on, have hold loads on. of sarcomeres in series. 
Oh, and they've hold all on, though. You said in static stretching, we get sarcomerogenesis. So if you need Titan to get stretched out, and then you're doing static stretching, and there's a compliance segment of Titan that stretches out, then how are we getting that stiff segment of Titan stretched out to give us that tension we need for those adaptations? Because you're going to your maximum range of motion. This is why just waving your arms around in the air isn't going to produce stretch mediated hypertrophy. It's not going to produce sarcomerogenesis because you're not getting to your maximum physiological joint angle range of motion. That's why static stretching is pushing into your kind of stretch tolerance limit, reaching the end range of your stretch. It's the end range that creates that kind of adaption. It's kind of like uh, if you want to think about it in the context of stimulating reps, it's the stimulating reps at the end of the set are the ones that make the difference. In the same way, moving to the end range of your um, physiological range of motion, that's kind of what's creating the adaption in terms of sarcomerogenesis. Okay, so it, when you have, is there a telltale sign outside of, you know, fascicle length measure? Because we've, you and I have talked about fascicle length measurements and, you know, we've, we've had people say that, you and I just were the ones that just decided the sarcomerogenesis is the adaptation from um, from stretch mediated hypertrophy, and that when we talk about fascicle length measurements, that using that as a proxy a proxy to for stretch mediated hypertrophy, that that's not always accurate. And I'm like, okay, so do we have anything else that we can look at that clearly changes? when a muscle has more sarcomeres in a series added, is there something else that particularly occurs when that happens? Yeah, so kind of, uh, let me address both of those points very quickly. Um, firstly, um, we're not the people who decided that fascicle length increases in humans reflect sarcomerogenesis, um, and, you know, uh, that, that's not something that we've made up. That's generally the default position. So, um, yes, you can argue the minority view if you wish, but please bring uh, data to support data. your view. Yes. Um, the default position exists, and it does. It is the default position. There's a recent review by a lot of people who work in this area, and they literally say in the kind of first paragraph of that review that sarcomerogenesis is assumed to be the uh, kind of adaption. There's actually the there's actually two in the last three years that both say this, and there's a number of papers that say the same thing when they're actually doing the introduction section. So, so uh, I want to be view. clear because I, I took that. I don't know why that, that really insulted me. And I felt like it probably insulted you uh, when people were like, this is not the consistency amongst the scientists. No, it effing is because there's a multitude of hypertrophy reviews that have gone over all of the data. And that is the consensus at the moment is that sarcomerogenesis is the addition of sarcomeres in a series and that we measure that by fascicle length increases and that that all occurs from quote unquote stretch mediated hypertrophy. Yeah. I mean, um, I guess my view is probably kind of a little bit more. Um, uh, kind of, I don't know. I have a quite a strong view about consensus as not being something that's relevant to science. I mean, I don't actually care whether something is consensus view or not. Um, I'm quite happy to argue minority views if I think they're correct. Um, but in terms of kind of claiming that we are presenting a minority view as, an, as a majority view, that is absolutely an in inaccurate statement. We yes. are presenting a majority view, uh, which we are also about to argue. Why I think that's a, actually a great point is like when, yeah, when somebody says that's not the consensus, well, 
I think it's pretty rare in any field in this in, in in the entire world of anything you're studying where it's going to be a hundred percent across the board where everybody just agrees on one on a, on a topic. But especially when you get into very nuanced subjects like this. However, I would I would say at this moment it is definitely the majority view when you look at the hypertrophy review papers and all the ways that hypertrophy occurs, it's documented quite well. And if you go into them, they even state in very plain language that, you know, this is, we have, here's the multitude of studies that we have that show this. And that's why we're going to talk about it in this way. So we're not really, it's not like some of these are even quite a few years older. I think uh, one of the reviews is back from 2020 and you and I really started working together in 2021. So it's there proceed either of us. It's not like there was, there's some conspiracy. You and I started, you know, talking back in 2015 and we're like, just wait till that 2020 review comes out. We'll start kind of publicly working together a year after that. And then we're, you know, we've, here's the, like the conspiracy where we all met in Bangladesh and talked about the ways that we're going to present hypertrophy that, you know, nobody knows of right now, so forth and so on. So again, if, if you look at the, I don't know if these, if these are linked in your, um, in, in this medium article, you've got so, you got so many citations in this article, but the fact is, uh, I, I had a brief conversation with Stu last week on it and he's like, it's all listed there in the review. And if you go through any of the hypertrophy reviews, this is how it's explicitly stated. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of, as I say, um, totally happy with people who want to defend minority positions on these things, but you have to kind of bring, um, you know, data to explain why it's the case. To explain to me why you think that an increase in muscle fascicle length in humans, for example, does not reflect sarcomeriogenesis because we have some data here that shows that it does. And that data is the change in the length tension relationship. So if we look at the animal models, we see sarcomeriogenesis happening. Now, we literally see it happening. We can measure it. So yep. we know that sarcomeriogenesis is happening. That sarcomeriogenesis happening changes and is connected to we can literally here's, again here's see the this. part i was going to ask you so if once sarcomeriogenesis happens if we we see fascicle length measurements for the people who are like blah blah we don't care about that i'm like is there anything else that we see yes, exactly. that occurs what is that thing we're changing the length tension relationship so what happens is we now start producing force at longer muscle lengths so yep. the the increase in force occurs to a greater extent at longer muscle lengths than it does at shorter muscle lengths now the reason for that is because as you cram more sarcomeres into the same muscle fiber then what happens is that each sarcomere now starts producing its maximum force on the plateau and that corresponds to a longer muscle length or a more extended joint angle. So yep. you get either what we call a change in the length tension relationship or corresponding to that, a change in the angle of peak torque. Yep. So basically in the animal models, we can link that sarcomeriogenesis very closely with the change in the, mus in the muscles uh, length tension relationship, in the muscle fibers length tension relationship, and also in the joint angle, uh, sorry, the angle of peak torque. If we then look at humans, we can see muscle fascicle length increases happening. And this is now think, talking about static stretching studies in humans. Static, stretching, static stretching studies in humans tend to show predominantly increases in muscle fascicle length. Those increases in muscle fascicle length correspond to greater increases in strength, but only at longer muscle lengths. Yep. So that shows you've got this change in the angle of peak torque reflecting an increase in the a change in the length tension relationship so we're kind of seeing exactly the same thing happening in in human static stretching studies as we see in these animal models of static stretch yeah there's um, a um 
there's a there's a uh, I sent it to you a couple of weeks ago and you had already done an infographic so you'd already seen it. there's a there's a peck study you're gonna have an infographic coming out on it yep. where they do this really beautifully right then they talk about it at the end they're like well we saw the increase in the the angle of pitor change uh they were stronger at longer muscle lengths and this happened due to exactly what we're talking about here so what i'm getting at with asking you these questions in that way is i'm getting you to kind of outline this so we're you know we're not just doing like the, the whole reach around thing with the data is that it's not only that we see when we talk about you know like the models like here's how these things lay out and there's a multitude of ways that we can identify them that they happen so if we we do static stretching or we train a muscle at a longer muscle length there's a specific adaptation that occurs if that muscle can experience passive tension due to the lengthening of tighten because that's where you're going to get the, the most amount of passive tension uh, tension produced in that muscle fiber and then the adaptation from that is to add sarcomeres in the series and i'd also add one thing here is that it's um it's also speculated quite a bit that it's kind of a protective mechanism too um that it's it's potentially something as something that's part of the repeated bout effect um to add sarcomeres in a series as well so that's also uh changing the angle of peak torque there so that the 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 muscle fibers can produce higher degrees of force at those longer lengths due to adding those sarcomeres in series. But what I'm getting at there is that we have a, a very repeatable process that we see where sarcomeres are added in a series, fascicle length me measurements increase, and then the angle of pain torque changes. And boom, it's really beautiful. You see that happen over and over and over and over consistently in muscles that can experience stretch-mediated hypertrophy, which we haven't even really gotten into the fact that not all of them do this. Sure. And I mean, just kind of, again, sort of c continuing that line of thought, there's been a kind of group of people who have argued that um, muscle fibers can change their intrafascicular termination points. Oh, you're going to so, pull out the, the intrafascicular terminations. So let's just address this now because I have not addressed it previously, but it is addressed in the article and let's do it now. So um, if you cause a muscle fiber to add sarcomeres in series, there are theoretically two things that can happen. It can either keep its termination points and essentially cram more sarcomeres into the same uh, length of muscle fiber, or it can just kind of grow up inside its fascicle and not change the sarcomere lengths um, uh, of any of the existing sarcomeres. If you do the former, and you cram more sarcomeres into the same um, space by fixing the intrafascicular termination points, then you will get a change in the angle of peak torque. If you don't, then you won't. So the fact that we do see pretty meaningful changes in the angle of peak torque after um, stretching, after eccentric training, after various other types of, of exercise, um, you're kind of proving the fact that intrafascicular termination points don't change. Yep. And this is why... This is why this is the we're, default we're really position. Getting, we're really getting, this is going to be a part where there's going to, it's only going to be people that are kind of working on a really high level. are going to get what we're talking about here. So essentially the intrafascicular termination is that we have muscle fibers that don't run end to end lengths of the fascicle. Well, most muscle fibers don't run the entire length of the fascicle and they have this termination point at some point inside the fascicle. Yeah. Right. So the, some people I, propose I, yes. you can get stretch-mediated hypertrophy forever because the fiber will just carry on growing up inside the fascicle 
forever. I mean, or until it kind of reaches the opposite end of the muscle, which it wouldn't do. So I, let me, let me back up. So what the intrafascicular termination people speculate is that when you're looking at fibers that run from a more proximal to a less distal um, end point is that those fibers could actually increase um, in terms of where they were terminated at uh, within the fascicle. So the, the actual fiber, so if you had a, a fiber that ran from a very proximal point and it ran, say, to the midpoint measurement-wise within the basically attachment points, then over time, that actual fiber would extend down the fascicle length. So there's so many problems with that one. And I, I, I sent you that one one day. You're like, I don't even have, I don't even want to get into that. And I ended up spending like a few days going through all that stuff. And I come back and got you. And I was like, okay, here's what's really going on with that. And um, I don't even know if we want to get into all that. But the point is, is that what you're getting at there is, if that occurred, then what would happen is, is that the actual working sarcomere length wouldn't change with the fascicle length increase with the with the uh, fiber increasing down through the, the fascicle and that you wouldn't have the angle of peak torque change that we see occurring so in other words yeah, you, you keep your, you keep your ability to stimulate sarcomeogenesis indefinitely which is which is you know tells us that the person who's kind of proposed this or the people who are proposing this actually do understand enough about sarcomeogenesis and the stimulus that creates it to create a model that you know, potentially can get around that problem. What I saw, yeah, is, I can say what I saw that as as a loophole to get around the fact that it is that, a loophole. But fundamentally, yeah. it, it violates what we're seeing biomechanically, which is that it produces a prediction. This is what when you're building a model, you have to look at what the model predicts, and if the model doesn't predict what's happening, your model is wrong. So your model has to predict reality, and if biomechanically we see changes in the angle of peak torque, then Changes in intrafascicular termination okay. points. So I'm going to do this, even though I, did, I said I just said I would. I'm going to do it. So I spent a few days going through this because, as you said, it looked like a loophole in the stretch mediated hypertrophy thing. And I said I'm going to actually. So the review, the actual hypertrophy review, one of the hypertrophy reviews brought the intrafascicular termination thing up, and then said we don't have enough data on this to even speculate, so we're not going to discuss it. So. So then I went out and found all of the data that we currently do have. We have no data on that in people at all, like zero. We have it in a few mammals, and then it was very specific to smaller mammals. It couldn't be extrapolated over into larger mammals. And then only in the smaller mammals did it actually, was this actually seen a couple of times, and it was very specific to only fusiform fibers that had more than one end plate with motor neurons. That was it. That's that's just the magnitude of that is in terms of where they saw this happen was so um, specific. In other words, we saw it in a smaller animal that had a specific fiber type that had multiple end plates. I would think it was two end plates with the motor neurons, which means when I told you that, you thought the same thing I did. You're like, oh, so it had to make sure that it kept tension balance throughout the the like the whole almost like the whole muscle area by being able to have both a fusiform fiber and multiple implants with the motor neurons so it was very 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 specific trying to extrapolate that over into people the, the whole reason why the hypertrophy 
uh, review, one of the reviews said we're not going to touch this is because number one, they don't even see it in large mammals, much less people. And they only saw it in a very specific fiber type with a very specific type of nerve innervation set up in small, like I can't remember the animal was, but it was a, it wasn't even a rodent. It was something else. But I think this is a good example of where hypertrophy researchers don't necessarily think outside the box and realize that there is actually another set of data right there in front of them, which tells them that it's not happening. You know, I mean, ultimately, if you literally just look at the changes in the angular peak torque, which has been really well documented by biomechanics researchers, you can see that the prediction produced by changes in intraparticular termination points is that changes in the angular peak torque do not happen. And since they do happen, (laughs) then that kind of tells you that intraparticular termination points aren't happening. So ultimately, I think... um, this is one of those areas where you have to kind of step outside of the hypertrophy literature, look at something else, and it tells you what is actually going on inside the hypertrophy literature. In the same way that I kind of did this with fatigue literature, you know, fatigue literature tells you why most of the hypertrophy findings are the way they are. Um, but people don't look at that fatigue literature because it's not classified as hypertrophy literature, so they don't see it as relevant. But it's actually more relevant that, than that was the hypertrophy one. literature. Yeah, well, once once I really started doing deep dives into like the stuff you had put out there, I realized what you had done is you had gone outside of the classical hypertrophy literature to find out the mechanisms that were causing either causing fatigue interference issues in hypertrophy or that played a part in hypertrophy stuff. And what's weird though is in the exercise science field, we have the all of these fields that exist outside of it that actually are looking at the mechanisms that we're talking about, but they're not really talked about inside the exercise science community. They're, they exist outside of it. And that's kind of this whole sarcomerogenesis thing, myofibrogenesis thing. A lot of that stuff is talked about very in-depth outside of what I consider kind of the exercise science hypertrophy community or has been for a while. The fatigue stuff, all of these other things. And then it's like when you talk about these these things inside the hypertrophy community, they, they, they're like, none of that stuff's real or it's not, doesn't. We had somebody that tell us like that we um, over-exaggerate the degree of fatigue stuff that happens with either like higher reps or central nervous system or calcium ion-related influx. And I'm like, bro, there's like mountains of data. I don't know what you're talking about. Like you either you haven't gone to look at this or you just don't know it. So the the intravesicular termination thing came up and you and I batted that back and forth because we thought it was pretty clever, right? Because it was like a, you and I said I, a long time ago, we said, okay, the research shows that stretch immediate hypertrophy and the way they were describing it with those specific adaptations can only run up to a certain amount because as we talked about once you got enough serial sarcomeres then the sarcomeres themselves they their length reduces so that they're not creating that that um it's like that threshold of passive tension you need to keep getting to keep getting adaptations so now that you have enough of them in a row that's not going to happen in a series so the workaround by that was my, and I, it was pretty clever. I will say it was pretty clever. Was the fact that intravesicular terminations um, of those fibers would say you could just get stretch mediated hypertrophy adaptations forever, which I'm like, yeah, no, because as you said, the other thing I think they didn't think about was the whole angle of peak torque thing, and that that's completely that's seen and repeatable in all of the the studies, and that also changes, and then. the adaptations don't further increase from there either. So it it isn't just one thing. It's a multitude of things that happen that we can look at to measure. 
um, when we look at the adaptations from Stretch. So, and that was the other one, was getting to the angle of pictorial. Yeah, so, so, I guess just to kind of finish that thought process, if somebody wants to continue arguing that intrafascicular termination points do change, you have to come up with a way that explains why the angle of peak torque changes that is not using sarcoma addition. So you have to come up with the reason or mechanism why you get a change in the angle of peak torque, even though you're not changing operating lengths of the sarcomeres. That's, that's what you have to do if you want to defend your hypothesis. Otherwise, our default position is that it doesn't happen. Yeah, that was the, that was, like I said, that was when we batted that back and forth, we were like, oh, that's a cl very clever way to go. And then immediately we were like, but then what about that angle of peak torque thing that happens every time we see this? You would have to explain that away. And you can't have both. So if the, the, the fiber that was running from a more proximal area, not as, and not as far distal, if it was to keep, because I think that's what, this person was getting at was like you have these more these fibers that are kind of sitting more where they their attachment parts are in a more distal area and they're not as or a more proximal area not coming as far distal and then they just continue to grow down distally to the end like closer to the end of the fascicles that was the whole premise of i'm going to keep getting these adaptations was that the fibers keep getting longer and have new attachment points it's like, sure but tell me tell me why the angle of peak torque changes then <laughs> because the the, if the because that's, that's what they have to do. That's what they right. have to do. They have to they have to find another explanation, which there isn't one. So no. So now here I try to throw a little monkey wrench. We have one study that looked. It was three weeks of Nordic leg curls, and they did not see an increase in fascicle length, but they did see an increase in sarcomere length. I you have I think you have this one listed in the article, don't you? Yeah, so generally speaking, sarcomere lengths um, change initially. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, you'll get an increase in sarcomere length before you get um, sarcomere genesis happening. Yep. So um, I'm not particularly I know Somebody surprised. tried to use that one against us. I'm like, okay, it's kind of a pre... Here's the, the other way I'll say this. The best way that I can describe that one is anytime that we have an adaptation occurring, there's almost always a precursor transient uh, adaptation that happens to like transients before but either way that's what i'm saying so when we have myofibrillar addition we generally see an increase in um sarcoplasmic area sarcoplasmic hypertrophies they, they like to call it it's a precursor to essentially the splitting of myofibrils and then myofibrils grow larger and they split and grow larger and split we we have seen sarcoplasmic hypertrophy as the precursor and we see it with heavy training with lower volume higher reps we it, it always occurs in in the research where we've been looking at it it generally occurs as a precursor to myofibril addition what i think and this is based on the going the the going off the research again this is what we always do is that what we tend to see right before the addition of the sarcomeres in the series happen is that the existing sarcomeres increase in length very similar to i think as the myofibril addition has sarcoplasmic hypertrophy occur right before myofibril addition occurs and then with sarcomere sarcomerogenesis there is an increase in the sarcomeres and then there's an addition of the sarcomeres in the series that happen after that Yeah, I mean, I guess just bears repeating that I think that was the first study in humans to measure 
soil chromatogenesis or attempt to measure soil chromatogenesis after a training uh, intervention. So when I kind of saw that study come out, I was like, oh, wow, well done, guys. <laughs> I wasn't really kind of thinking about the result that they kind of discovered because it's like, well, now that we've got a method that we can kind of do, people are going to kind of hopefully do some more studies in the same area. And I would expect to start seeing sarcomerogenesis because ultimately sarcomerogenesis is the only real viable uh, kind of adaption that explains changes in the angle of peak torque and the increases in muscle fascicle length that we see after strength training, which is kind of, you know, therefore that's why it's the default position in most of the review articles. So the interesting thing about the angle of peak torque stuff to me is, and the protective mechanism stuff is that when we look at these eccentric based studies and we see sarcomerogenesis from a critical thinking standpoint and a practice, like just kind of a, applying a little bit of common sense there, when you think about um, sports injuries and you think about the fact that the ability to control deceleration forces is a massive part of um, sports training and then like having injury prevention stuff is that the that's the adaptation that you see because one of the things that they they saw when using nordic leg curls right was that there was a massive reduction in hamstring strains when they got athletes stronger at nordic leg curls well if you see the rapid increase in um fascicle length and sarcomerogenesis that occur from the nordic leg curl and that you see an angle uh the the angle of peak torque change is that all of that also falls in line with, hey, I'm better able to decelerate and produce force at those longer muscle lengths now due to those specific adaptations. And that's their reduction in injuries uh, as well. So in other words, I think when you start, when you're able to piece all these things together, there's a multitude of ways of looking at this that makes sense, you know, on uh, several fronts. Yeah, I mean, I think there's quite a few things going going on in that in that particular example but certainly i agree with what you just said as as part of that yeah so that's kind of like when when i start looking at um all of that stuff i start thinking about the other things where does this extrapolate off into kind of other areas that we looked at you know and how that's occurring um let me see here where were we at so we, we got to the we kind of segued into talking about um eccentric training or strength training which is obviously Kind of requires us okay, to no, just no, take there a was moment. something. Okay, there was one part I wanted to get here too. Okay, so with static stretching stuff, because we have to set this up, because there's one part you go into, and I want to be really clear about this in the article. In static stretching, we see stretch mediated hypertrophy, but we we don't actually have. It's not the same as strength training because in there you state that the fibers do not have to be active to experience stretch mediated hypertrophy and static stretching not at all i mean obviously that's kind of the definition of what we're doing here where we're kind of not activating fiber we're not creating cross bridges therefore we're not creating contraction mediated muscle growth we are only producing a stretch stimulus and that obviously means that any hypertrophy that happens must be only stretch mediated hypertrophy this is why static stretching is so much better as a source of information than the strength training literature because it kind of clarifies things. It stops us having to worry about contraction media hypertrophy. So yeah, we're getting this increase in sarcomerism series. We're seeing that as an increase in fascicle length in humans. We're getting the changes in the angle of peak torque, which tell us that we're kind of creating sarcomerogenesis in humans as well. And basically it's all kind of fitting together very nicely. Right. 
So now as we get into that segue into eccentric base, so it's kind of the eccentric base studies that we've seen where we see sarcomeriogenesis and we see the increased factual length and we see those measurements, we're looking at, um, in a, when we're talking about eccentric training, there's kind of two ways to look at that, right? So it's whether we're talking about the lowering or eccentric phase in a dynamic contraction or actual eccentric training, which usually involves super maximal loads. So there's yeah, kind of... to clarify, you can't stretch, you can't create a stretch stimulus unless you're actually stretching a muscle or the muscle fibers. Mm -hmm. So you're only really going to create this stretch stimulus during your eccentric phases of an exercise. So if you're doing eccentric only training, obviously everything you're doing is going to be creating this kind of um, static, sorry, not static, this, this passive tension stimulus that you're looking for. Conversely, as you just pointed out, if you're simply just doing a normal strength training exercise like you would do in the gym, then it's your lowering phases where that adaption is going to be stimulated. You're not going to create a stretch mediated hypertrophy stimulus while you are shortening the muscle fibers in the concentric phase. I hope everyone can agree on that. If they can't, I think we're probably... <laughs> We're probably on to that's what i said before it's like yeah. i don't if somebody can't agree on some some of these specific principles then we can't really have an intelligent debate because we have to be able to get to a, a central point of being able to discuss the principles to begin with so if we're looking at eccentric based uh super whether we're doing super maximal loading or whether we're doing um the eccentric part of a dynamic repetition in string training we're talking about now we're talking about active fibers because there's a difference in in just static stretching stuff and string training stuff where the fibers are actually active. There's a certain amount of fibers that are active during the lowering or eccentric portion of that exercise. Yeah, well, let's let's kind of get into that because the the key difference between a static stretch and the lowering phase of a strength training exercise or eccentric only training. Is that the static stretch involves us reaching a very very long muscle length that is close to our maximum physiological range of motion and getting to that point is the critical point that stimulates the sarcomeriogenesis we have to stretch the sarcomeres to the point when they produce that passive tension from titan that then gives us the stimulus for sarcomeriogenesis we are not doing that in eccentric only training we're not doing that in the lowering phase of a strength training exercise Almost no strength training exercise gets to a point where we're actually at our maximum range of, 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 of motion. They are, they're called stretch position exercises. We probably should call them elongated muscle position exercises or lengthened uh, kind of position exercises. Um, stretch position, I've used the terminology, I do use the terminology. It's probably not helpful for people's understanding because technically we're not actually stretching the muscle. So there's got to be a reason why we're producing some passive tension that was actually that's pretty pretty funny because i remember um when i was at tom purvis's workshop um earlier in the year and somebody was bringing this up and he's like well he goes you don't really stretch these muscles anyway he goes not in he goes that's kind of a misnomer he goes um, there's, there's only like five muscles in the body that you can actually stretch he goes we really don't quote unquote stretch them when we string train anyway he goes so is, there's a difference between saying a longer muscle length and actually stretching so these are not the same when we talk about training a muscle and they talk about stretch media hypertrophy the truth is is even though you and i have had to go all the way back to actually redefine help people understand when you say hypertrophy what is it you're describing not only that but when we actually talk about stretch stretch and longer muscle lengths are actually still not the same things 
like a longer muscle length is we can train a muscle and strength training at a longer muscle length, but static stretching involves a completely different thing. And actually there's, you know, it's kind of, as Tom was getting, there's only a few muscles in the body. You can actually stretch. Those are, I think they're pretty much all bioarticular muscles. So, um, there's only a few muscles you can take to, to, to really stretch. Now, I, that's probably I think a it really depends on your definition of stretch. But, I mean, ultimately, uh, in terms of um, what we're saying here, the point is that static stretching is fundamentally different from the longer muscle lengths. Strength training. So there yes. has to be a reason, because otherwise, otherwise, I mean, because I think some people are walking around going, well, you know, okay, well, I can get stretch median hypertrophy and um, it's it doesn't matter whether the muscle is activated or not in this strength training exercise or it doesn't matter which muscle fibers are activated because um, it's the stretch stimulus that is producing the adaption not the the the, the, the kind of the the activation in combination with the stretch as we'll get on to in a minute but the reality is that those strength training positions that you're holding in that end range of motion not even end range of joint angle range of motion, but end range of the exercise range of motion. Um, they're not particularly difficult to reach. You could probably hold them like all day long. I mean, in fact, in most, for example, biceps curl exercises, we're probably holding a position which is close to, if not beyond the point of your stretch position exercise. I think that was um, that was another one that I heard. Um, we can address that one too, since you just brought that up. So one of the ones that I heard was that, um, of course, the biceps benefit from passive tension because if you try to straighten out, fully extend your elbow, and then relax, then you will pull, like there will you pull, like the bicep will pull back, and that's tightened. That's a reflex action. It's not tightened. Yes, I know. That's exactly what I said. That's true. And one of the things that we laughed about, you was like, okay, then put somebody under anesthesia and see if that happens. <laughs> <laughs> So there was a multitude of ways people have tried to explain why the, the biceps or triceps would, like in real life, I'm like, no, that's a stretch reflex action from the nervous system that has nothing to do with Titan. Um, so the point where I was going with this was that you could literally just stand upright and technically your biceps muscle would be in that position that you're claiming yes. is sufficient to create I, uh, a 20 degrees of flexion at the elbow is actually pretty much a fully lengthened bicep anyway like fully extending the elbow doesn't and is, is that that's supposed supposed to be triggering an adaption well it obviously isn't because we can kind of walk around all day and that's not going to create that adaption so well if that was tighten okay chris if that was tighten if that was a stiff segment of tighten then all you'd have to do is walk around all day with your arm fully extended and you would get tons and tons and tons of bicep growth if that's how yeah, every time i carry my shopping work. back across town you I'd would be just be getting tons of stretch mediated yeah. hypertrophy right exactly. so like it's all of these things that, yes i've heard they're just really weird so where we're kind of going with this is that muscle fibers are going to behave differently in the lowering phase of a strength training um, in comparison with how they behave in a static stretch. And what it comes down to is that tightening responds to the muscle fibers being activated. So anytime you um, activate a muscle fiber and then start lengthening it, then tightening basically, um, the mechanisms are kind of debated, but what seems to happen is that the compliance segment doesn't stretch. Instead, we start stretching the stiff segment from a shorter muscle length. So you get passive tension from tightening, 
starting at a much shorter muscle length than you would do if you were doing a static stretch. So the important thing here is that this mechanism only happens in an activated muscle fiber. So you only get the muscle fibers that are activated experiencing the stretch stimulus. I think um, this is something that uh, you know we've been really trying very hard to help people understand, which is that the stretch mediated hypertrophy stimulus in strength training only relates to the muscle fibers that you're actually activating in the eccentric phase, which actually isn't that many in comparison with the number of fibers you get activated in the concept. This is this was this is the massive hole it is enormous. that exists that um, the whole stretch me everything grows better at longer lengths. Muscle people don't for whatever reason they haven't thought of. I can't propose a reason. I, I don't know why people don't understand that the passive tension that's being generated is only going to apply to the muscle fibers that are activated. And you're probably getting between 50 and 60% of what you can activate in the concentric phase. That's the at best. That's at, at absolute best. In the eccentric phase. So yeah. that's the limit. You can't go any higher than that. So it's the bottom end of your high threshold motor unit pool. It's not the muscle fibers at the top. So you've got this limitation, and that's really where we're stuck. So it's pretty interesting because I think that also plays probably a part in why not only um, you see beginners get stretch-mediated hypertrophy is because a couple of reasons. Is Number one is because uh, since they're untrained and they don't have those adaptations uh, and they haven't had sarcomerogenesis occur, a couple of a couple of things there is that then after a few months of training um you're also um not even loading um a significant number of fibers off the higher end of the high threshold uh motor unit pool um because you're able to get higher degrees of motor unit recruitment um, as you train so if you get a trained individual who's able to get a, a really high degree of motor unit recruitment in his training, then it's kind of what coming back to is at, at very best, you're getting to that lower to moderate end of the high thresh, uh, threshold motor unit pool on the eccentric or lowering phases. So you're not actually, you're not getting, since you're getting lower degrees, basically half of activation comparatively as you get to the concentric contraction, um, you've already got those fibers for the most part maxed out in terms of muscular potential. Yeah. I mean, also we can see the comparison between eccentric training as in maximal effort eccentrics compared with normal strength training, maximal effort eccentrics cause way more fascicle length increases than, um, you know, just the normal kind of stretch position exercise. I mean, clearly what we're doing here is we're applying stimulus to a, the passive tension stimulus to a far greater number of muscle fibers. I mean, this is really all fitting together very, very uh, neatly. There's no kind of um, deviations from the model that we're kind of outlining here. It all fits together. What about uh, what about the idea that you can you can work to get to like really deeper, deeper ranges? Um, you know, in the stretch in some exercises. Like, what if you used a cambered bar in the bench press, you know, and was really getting deep into the bench press? Or what if you used, you know, dumbbells and really get deep? I, I still think that... Go ahead. I'll let you answer that, though. I have my thoughts on that, though. Well, basically, you're, you're changing your maximum range of motion 
So there's a really nice, one of my favorite studies in eccentric training shows that if you compare seated and lying hamstrings, eccentric leg curls, you get more of the stretch mediated hypertrophy, more of the fascicle length increases, bigger changes in the angle of peak torque. Um, in the long uh, in the long uh, muscle length version, the seated leg curl, than you do in the lying leg curl, which is literally everything we're talking about. Um, so you'd get the same effect. You'd, you'd basically get a new effect because of that change in the um, maximum muscle length. And then again, you'd get a new plateau at that new maximum muscle length. And so you'd have to kind of keep upping the ante and going again and again and again to longer and longer muscle lengths if you can make that happen. And if you can do that... So eventually sure. you have that you have that person doing seated hamstring curls where they're almost like when you... You know how you have somebody lay, lay on their back on the floor and then you have them, uh, somebody else like stretch their hamstring out to where they're, they're it's reaching like towards their head? You're like you have them in that position where they just have to keep getting longer and longer hams. I, I think that also it speaks in terms to the practical application to any of this and that any of that stuff for the most part is going to have um is going to have uh practical limitations just due to physiological joint angle ranges and stuff like that for people, right? And then the main the main limitation is gonna be the equipment because the equipment just isn't set up to do this stuff. So <laughs> Static stretching is actually far more practical. If, if you kind of want to go down the route of making this happen for a much longer period of time, then a static stretch is going to be your best bet because you can kind of do this in your own home. You just have to, you know, kind of follow the instructions and gradually, you know, whatever static yep. stretching increase program you're following tolerance, yep. and just increase your stretch tolerance. And as long as you're increasing the range of motion that you're using every single time you do the stretch by a small amount, or at least from week to week, then you know that you are reaching new maximum muscle lengths and therefore you're continuing to stimulate sarcomeritonesis. In strength training, it's much more difficult to organize because you're kind of having to probably work with free weights. You're, rather at, than the, you're at the mercy of the, the equipment, the manufacturer's you are, design. Absolutely. You are, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, I, I think even there, there's there's a couple of things. Number one, when, when I'm talking about actually like lifting, where say like you do a bench press with a cambered bar, or any of that kind of stuff, um, I think number one, you start getting back to regardless of how much stretch you get, there's going to be physiological limitations on how far your particular joints are going to want to move through ranges of motion, right? So there's only so much stretch you can ever get anyway. And then again, once you get the adaptations to however much stretch you can get. They max out pretty fast. You know, you get the adaptations pretty fast to those. The idea that you're going to be getting them forever and ever and ever and ever again would make zero sense in the world if you actually understand the physiology. So uh, you actually max those out pretty fast. So that leads me into this other conversation with you that has been coming up a lot. <sighs> okay, now now I get this one has, has, this has been the one that has really ground my gears. And that is somehow stretch can overcome a lack of leverage. And when I say leverage, I am talking about internal moment arm. So now we're back to talking about neuromechanical matching, which is why we had to talk about that in the very beginning of this one. And now I was bringing up the point between does a muscle fiber have to be active to experience passive tension? So if we're doing static stretching, we're st we, it doesn't because we're stretching the whole muscle out and then the sarcomeres within those fibers get pulled out over 
they were trying to get them past the compliance segment into the stiff segment when get the passive adaptations. However, when we're doing strength training, if a fiber is going to experience tension and strength training, it's the fibers that are active, which is one of the reasons that EM, what EMG is good for. Because somebody tried to make an argument, well, EMG is not good because it doesn't, it's not a valid predictor of hypertrophy because of that Andrew Vitalsky review that was done. And I think that's, that's taking that that's taking that review paper and all of the associated issues horribly out of context. It's, yes. it's an incredibly childish approach to talking about EMG. Um, the the context of that review is talking about first, well, depending on which review or what paper we're talking about, but um, the, the the issues uh, at stake here are basically talking about longitudinal um, predictors of hypertrophy or understanding essentially. Um, what EMG is really doing. Um, if we are wanting to simply say which muscle is more activated, as in which muscle is closer to its uh, voluntary activation limit, then EMG is pretty good at that. It mm -hmm. really is. So, you know, we're basically just saying which muscle is, and, and this tracks with basically everything that you might want to do in, in any kind of hypertrophy or leverage type investigation. We see muscles that have good leverage also have good EMG um, measurements, you know, high uh, muscle activation levels. So you talk about this often in the lats. You know, you get this really high level of activation in the lats below shoulder height. And you have really That's, great leverage honestly, below I think the, shoulder yeah. height. Um, I think if, the lats are one of the best ones to look are. at that prove neuromechanical matching because there's so many EMG lat studies. We only have one actual hypertrophy study, longitudinal hypertrophy study on the lat that's ever existed. We have tons of EMG studies, though. And 100% of the EMG studies on the lats are replicatable. They show the same thing over and over and over again. And it's almost a, a map drawing of the... Um, the Ackland study leverage. looking at yeah. the leverages yes, yeah. of the lats. So when you look at the lats and you have, you're working through the sagittal plane and you're, you're doing like a pull down, they are really doing very little up there at the top. When you get above about a hundred degrees or so. And I know in the Ackland study, it's, it says 120, but if you look in the studies, they don't really kick in until about 90. So if you really look at the studies uh, for EMG studies, the lats really start to kick in over the packs at about 90 degrees. So I know it's They're still not false. an overhead muscle in the way that people uh, think. Not the way people think they are. So this is no, what I was getting back to with that. So um, it was said by somebody that stretch can overcome a lack of leverage. I, I, this was one, another one of those moments where I'm doing the trigonometry woman meme thing. <clears throat> if a muscle fiber does not have leverage, then the central motor command will not allocate motor unit recruitment to those fibers because of the fact that it's to be a very efficient way um, to legitimately occupy, occupy space in the brain. Why would your central nervous system allocate resources to for a muscle fiber that doesn't have leverage to do anything? That's Absolutely. the part to... And, and in fact, and this is something that I think, again, people aren't taking into account, exercise science has quite a lot of musculoskeletal modeling that gets done. It's a big area. It's very, uh, you know, kind of interesting, and it takes up a lot of um, smart people's time. But basically, that those musculoskeletal models assume neuromechanical matching. They assume that the brain is trying to minimize muscle yep. activation. 
Well, that's what neuromechanical matching is doing. It's sending activation to muscles that have best leverage and therefore can do the movement with the lowest possible levels of muscle activation. So you obviously think about joint torques. Being you know, I've never reversed it. I've never reversed it like that, but I think that's a much clearer picture when you think about the fact that the brain's trying to minimize the amount of muscle activation so it's going to use the most efficient, right? The most efficient. It's minimizing effort. It's minimizing activation. It's minimizing um, uh, ATP usage. Just anything you want to kind of talk about in that context. Because that's efficient. It's efficient. Like That's the part that always drives me nuts. And I've heard this one a few times before, and it's from people with PhDs in exercise science. And, and they will say that, if well, what if the brain actually is trying to to uh, give this muscle more activation because it doesn't have leverage? And I literally just have to stammer back and go, why in the hell would the brain do that? That's the least efficient way it could handle that as possible. So I have this other muscle over here that's got a large physiological cross-sectional area and I it has great leverage at this joint angle and I can allocate motor units for it to do that action but instead I'm going to take this other muscle that has very poor leverage at that angle and I'm really going to send a lot of action potentials there that makes no sense at all and that is not what any of the data shows us when we look at EMGs like you said we can look at essentially action potentials is what EMG is measuring. So when we talk about activation of a muscle, and I, I think that people crapped on, has crapped on this so much, they've just lost sight of the fact that EMG is really a great tool for understanding kind of these things. And in the, what, these people doing the, the length and partials where they got their arms up over their heads, like in a dumbbell barbell pullover, or they're doing lat pull downs and just working the top part of the range of motion. We have an I enormous. Pull that lat pull down then. It's not a lot of pull down. It's, a, it's really more like a peck and tricep pull down at that point. <laughs> but but, but a, a barbell pullover or a dumbbell pullover, 100% across all of the studies that have looked at it, it's, it's pecs and triceps. Right? That's what's doing yeah. the most work there. The last are doing almost nothing. In fact, in one of them where they, where they standardized out the MVIC, uh, and somebody asked me about this the other day, on the eccentric portion, it was 8% activation of the lats on the eccentric not doing portion. Anything. Literally doing nothing. I mean, literally doing nothing, but people will say, well, I feel a big stretch there. And I'm like, I don't care. So what? That doesn't mean anything. Like just because you feel a muscle stretch, that you could walk around all day. They want your arms over your head. Well, that's the point I made to you the other day. Why don't you just hang from a bar? Why don't you just (laughs) just hang from the bar? Somebody might say then this is that, so would that work as a passive stretch for the lats? Or if you just hang from the bar? I think you can probably get further range of motion into shoulder extension but sorry shoulder flexion shoulder flexion if you're just hanging from the bar then you're then you're typically doing but once you add in here's the issue once you add in the concentric portion the lats don't do anything there you see what i'm getting at so like so once you do the actual shoulder extension portion the lats aren't really doing anything if you're hanging from the very top so people are not able to separate these off. See what I'm saying? Like, so let's say you you got into a shoulder flexion position through the sagittal plane where you're just really hanging like up like this, right? The lats are super stretched out. It's like you're doing like a weighted hang. As this is the part we were just talking on the very first part of this. Once you start the concentric contraction, you're talking about completely different things. Right. That is the part nobody seems to get. So if you did get lat, lat growth from hanging like that, 
and called it stretch mediated hypertrophy. If you anything that you're getting from the concentric action there is not stretch mediated hypertrophy. We have contraction mediated hypertrophy, and contraction mediated hypertrophy is um, you're going to get that as far as preferential to what has leverage at that particular joint angle. So if you're just doing those like what they're talking about uh, length and partials for lats, where you're in the top position and you're pulling. That's going to be pecs and triceps and some rear delts. And then when they do the eccentric phase, those exact same muscles which are have the leverage, which you just described, they will be experiencing the passive mechanical tension provided right. by titan. The muscle fibers that are not part of that group of activated muscles will not. So basically... The lats are not getting any stretch mediated hypertrophy in that range of motion because they're not activated. You have to activate the muscle and then stretch it in order you need, to create... See, I think you need an infographic on that somehow to explain that for, the, for all the people that are running around talking about length and partials. And they're using these weird ranges of motion where in those stretch positions, the muscles that they claim... to produce hypertrophy. They don't have any... They're not activated. even active. They they're not even yet. active. Like I said, in one of the one of the studies, EMG studies, it was 8%. I'm like, dude, you just have to look there. Because somebody came to me and said, what is it? He said, uh, well, the last were 50% active. There was another study. This guy sent me. He said, well, the last were 50% active in a pullover. I go, that's nothing. And I'm talking about in the, in the concentric phase. Concentric phase. In the concentric like phase. And I go, in the I go phase, okay, then. so then that means it's like 20% in the eccentric <laughs> phase where they're saying you're getting the stretch. I'm like, so it's literally just falls off the map. Do you, like, does... Do the, the people who consider themselves evidence-based, do they actually ever look at the evidence? Or it just seems like it's a bunch of cherry-picking that's going on. You can on. see it's people who are selective about what they think counts. So they basically yes. take the stretch um, position versus contract position exercise studies, literally. I mean, this is the thing that people have repeated to me multiple times. Is basically, well, that study doesn't fit my category of of you know my criteria for a study that's relevant because it doesn't have a strength training exercise at a long length and a strength training exercise at a short length therefore it, it, we literally ignore all the rest of the literature so well, hang on a minute you know we actually understand how this stuff works and it goes all the way back to animal models decades ago we understand how sarcomagenesis happens we understand how um, you know passive tension works we understand how tightening works and it tells us and predicts what's happening in these studies. In fact, it also predicts why some studies produce this effect and some don't. So like we've talked a number of times about there being muscles that are more sensitive to the passive tension stimulus because their sarcomeres get stretched longer because every muscle has sarcomeres that operate different range of lengths. Right. So if we pick the quadriceps, they generally do operate much further down what we call the descending limb. Therefore, they're passing this key threshold of um, the sarcomere length that will allow it to produce enough passive tension so we get sarcomeogenesis. Those muscles will operate much further down that uh, limb of the uh, descending limb of the length tension relationship, and therefore we're going to get the passive tension that produces stretch mediated hypertrophy, sarcomeogenesis. Other muscles, like the triceps and the biceps, don't do that. We can literally look at the sarcomere operating lengths data that we've got. They show us that they aren't going to pass that length. We can therefore predict that there's any studies that are done with 
stretch position exercises will not produce stretch mediated, per, stretch mediated hypertrophy in either the biceps or the triceps. Triceps, we've got some really nice data. You keep telling people this and they keep ignoring you. Um, we've got several studies showing that we don't get consequent increases. We have three now. We, we have positions. three now that have all done overhead positions, although one of them only had five five subjects, so that one's not good. So you know how to push my buttons. I mean, ultimately, if, if people haven't done a reverse power calculation, I'm not interested in their opinions on whether five subjects is enough. Um, so you do know. you want to explain to people, because this one's come up a few times, the idea that that study was underpowered because it has five people. Do you want to explain confidence interval to people? Uh, not really, but what I will do is explain to people that the word power Statistical power has a very, very specific meaning in exercise, well, in statistics in general, and, and therefore in exercise science. If you want to claim that a study is underpowered, you can do what is called a reverse power calculation. So if you think that a study is underpowered because you eyeball the number of subjects and you think that that might not be sufficient to create the necessary effect for it to reach statistical significance appropriately, then go and do the reverse power calculation and tell people by how much that study is underpowered. If you don't do that, then you don't know whether it's underpowered or not. You can't eyeball the number of subjects and say, oh, it's underpowered because I think in my infinite wisdom, because I'm so smart that this study didn't have enough subjects. No, do the calculation. If you can't, then don't claim that it's underpowered. End of rant. Yes. Um, anytime that's come up, I've always just, I'm like, well, what are we actually... What is the data we're trying to get out of this? Uh, the best way I explain this to, to people is use the example one time you said, well, if I was trying to determine um, using a confidence interval, if five-year-olds were going to grow from the time they were five to 10 years old, how many would I well, need? What well, I said was, uh, if you wanted to know whether human, human five-year-olds yeah. grew between the age of five and 10, how many human beings would you need to measure to be confident? that human beings grow between the age of five and ten and i think we came up with a number that was pretty small it's pretty small like it had to be more than one <laughs> you're talking about a very very small number of humans that you would so need to the track one of the things that i've period. heard so i just want to do this one real quick because it's it's been it's annoying it's annoyed me pretty bad and number one that study is a very good study uh, they had really study. it's a really good study they use five people and they measured, I want to say they did four different measurements, fascicle length oh, measurements. Oh, at least four. At least they did, four. It was I mean, a really good study. That really pissed me off because it's like they only had five people. I'm like, you're, you're just supposed to be the guy with the PhD and you don't even understand how this works. So they, they tried to bring up, well, like how stupid it is that they had five studies. And then they tried to make a comparison of like uh, pharmaceutical studies where they have tens of thousands of people over the course of like a decade. And I'm like, because that you're trying to look at a multitude of outcomes that you cannot account for. So you need to have tons of people over a long period of time taking this drug because you're looking at an, like a, like a, just like an enormous amount of outcomes that you can get from side effects to you know, long-term side effects, short-term side effects. You have to have a larger group of people. When we're looking at it, one, one exercise, an overhead triceps extension, and we're trying to determine if fascicle length increasements, uh, pination angle increase, 
cross-sectional area increase. We're just doing a few measurements. So how many people would we need to determine if an overhead tricep extension caused an increase in fascicle length increases? How many people would we need? Well, it depends on how big the effect is that you're, you're expecting to see. If you take a group of untrained people and you put them through a 12-week strength training program, you're expecting to see some pretty big strength gains yep. and some pretty big increases in various types of muscle architecture. So based on the size of the increase, like the point I made earlier about, you know, you're expecting to see a really big change in height between human five-year-olds and human 10-year-olds. So the same thing is happening here. Over a three-month period of time, you're expecting to see some pretty big changes in everybody, and therefore you don't need hundreds of subjects in order to be confident that you will actually find a meaningful result, a statistically significant result. So you basically, and the fact that you did see statistically significant results in pretty much every measurement apart from fascicle length kind of tells you that the study worked because yep. you are getting, it's not like if, if, if you'd taken that study and every single measurement produced a non-significant outcome, then you'd kind of be suspecting that it was underpowered. That's what your suspicion would be because it's like, well, you know, clearly strength training works as I keep telling people and they keep ignoring me strength <laughs> training works. And um, so, you know, we're expecting to see some changes. And we did. We saw changes in pretty much everything apart from classical length. Well, that kind of tells you something. And no amount of criticizing this, the study for the fact that it, you think in your infinite wisdom, you know, um, that, that the study didn't have enough subjects. Well, you know, it worked for everything else. And that was the thing. It would also be is if, if one person, when you go and look at when you and I have done that before, where we go and look at every little dot for every little subject and what's going on and how that can change the mean outcomes of the study at times too, because you sometimes an outlier can end it's up. It's very in, annoying when, when you see a, an outlier that is clearly bending the, 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 the overall uh, group. Uh, really that's pretty annoying what we had a study where we looked at where we could not figure out why they came to the conclusion they did and we ended up opening it up at the same time and we're we we both looked at we were like remember it was we go look at the gray dot that one gray dot there was one gray dot that was like an outlier for everybody in the group and change he bent the whole mean averages for the group it was he was such it's an a outlier. Really, really big outlier it was yeah. a huge outlier in the I group think in, those cases, I, in, in the old days we used to kind of see data presented with and without outliers which i thought was a, a, a much better way of doing it. i think it's i really do think it's a better way because i think that when and they have the outliers i think it muddles the discussion at times because there's going to be an outlier one way or the other on every study and if we're just looking for a mean average i think it's better to get to have to, to kind of take that out of what we're looking at there because it does bend things and for somebody who goes who says it doesn't i'm telling you like we've looked at plenty where we're like look at this one guy on the plot like he's just like out there in space away from everybody else in the whole study so when you see when you see the study done, so it shows the trend lines for every single subject from before to after training, and the study is presenting a mean that shows no change. And then you look at every single subject, and every single subject is going in one direction, and then the other guy, the outlier, is going the opposite direction. I'll give and you he's... a great example of how this help this muddies the water at times, and that has been in some of the rep range studies, and that's one of my my favorites to point out to people, and people will say. That's not true because we have outliers in rep range studies. And I'm like, that's easily explainable. It's because they enjoy doing that rep range more. 
So if you have a higher degree of motivation for a particular rep range, you'll have a higher degree of effort, which means more motor unit recruitment, which means more mechanical attention. And, and that comes back to motivational thing. We've seen that in other studies where people were able to self-select exercises and had much better growth, despite the fact that they were basically doing the same program. So we, we actually have these studies that look at that. And, but I think it muddies the waters because people will say, well, we have outliers. I think the same thing when we look at sometimes like at volume and they'll like, well, here's an outlier that is out here and like we have all this massive compact of like little dots of all of these people that fall right within this neat little area and then we'll have a couple of outliers and then the researchers to account they have to account for every outlier and say well it can be it can be up to this many i'm like no it's one dude out of a hundred it's one dude out of a hundred that was up there and that he's that dot so you're talking about how that the lots of other no it's like one dude we don't even know what he was doing maybe he was on you know maybe he was involved in that testosterone group that that. And then he was doing like two studies at one time because he was trying to get, you know, paid going through college. I don't know. But the point is, is that I think that at times those money's the water. But coming back to this tricep study, if you looked at all just the five people, the results were really, they they all grew. They had an increase in pination angle, cross-sectional area, and nothing in the fascicle length. Well, what's neat about that is that's happened in all the other tricep studies. So if you wanted to combine them all and how many people we had collectively across those, we actually have a lot of people that they did these measurements on and found the exact same things. So it's not even just looking at a study. It's looking at collectively, here's the measurements that we had across those studies. Here's the things that they had involved that are similar. And they all found the same things. And that is science. We have a repeatable process that's happening here. So why did it happen that way? Well, if we had, didn't have an increase in fascicle length, that means we didn't have an increase in sarcomeres in a series, which means we didn't have stretch-mediated hypertrophy, which means that also lines up with the fact that in the studies where they've looked at the working sarcomere length of the long head of the triceps and the triceps in general, they don't get to the descending limb, which means that we theorize that the triceps would not benefit from stretch-mediated hypertrophy. And then guess what? When they did these studies and they had an overhead triceps exercise, they didn't see a fascicle length increase. Do you see how all that fits together like really neatly? Like it's, but I think yeah, and, just... and this is, as you pointed out in your quotation at the very beginning of, of this um, kind of podcast, this is not something that we've made up. This is something that we are popularizing because this is generally how sarcomerogenesis um, researchers view how stretch mediated hypertrophy works. Do you know what's interesting? And you and I had this conversation, so I had some email exchanges with a guy whose primary field is sarcomerogenesis. And some of those guys don't even consider this hypertrophy because it's not. Sure. Because it's the not radial growth. hypertrophy yes. excludes longitudinal growth. But yes. that's getting into the weeds of nomenclature, I think, that kind of crosses boundaries. But right. But what I was getting to is he 100% says this is one of the leading researchers in the sarcomerogenesis field that stretch causes sarcomerogenesis, which causes an increase in serial sarcomer number, which increases fascicle length. But he doesn't even consider that hypertrophy because it's not radial growth. So what I'm saying is getting back to how you and I kind of got on this conversation was the fact is that you have to actually define how are you defining hypertrophy? And then if you're defining stretch-mediated hypertrophy, how are you defining that? Because it's different than contraction-mediated. So all of these things are different. But, yeah, we, I exchanged emails with him, and he's like, stretching doesn't cause hypertrophy. It causes sarcomerogenesis, which I've, I was like busted out laughing. And I'm like, that's, that's kind of... That's the definition. I think a lot of a lot of um, hypertrophy researchers are actually using. I mean, 
not all of them, but many of them actually using that definition. You can see in the literature where people are kind of sort of walking around each other's definitions, uh, trying to leave space in there. I, I think it's a terrible practice, but it's kind of a very human one where we kind of walk around each other's definitions to allow space for them. But ultimately, we do recognize that there are two I, I kind of definitions that, of that. Approach. That is the cause of a lot of arguments because um, you have, we've talked about the fact that, that there's a multitude of terms in physiology that all mean the same thing, but they're different words. And for example, if you say leverage, because anytime I say leverage, you'll get that look on your face. And I'm like, you know what I'm saying? But to me, leverage is just the internal moment arm. That's just leverage. In practice, I think it pretty much is. But um, technically, it includes other stuff as well. So if I say force production, what do you think? Um, generally, I kind of wait for context before I <laughs> go any further with something as general as force production. <laughs> I, I really do. I just kind of wait to see where the person is going with the conversation before okay, I kind of... Okay, I'll give you an example. The, tri the tricep study... I think the best tricep study ever done so far was the one you and I referenced. I can't remember the researcher behind it, but it's basically they looked at um, they looked at activation and they looked at force production at various different shoulder angles and elbow angles. So when they say force production there, what what do you think they mean? So the triceps long head had more was able to create more force at a more flexed elbow position with and the anatomical position, right? Like that's what that research shows. So what do you get out of that? So I would imagine that that's probably from memory. I, I can't remember the, the details of that measurement in that study, but I would imagine it's actually a torque measurement. Yes. Which I don't, I don't, um, I don't like it when that gets, when those boundaries get crossed, but um, I understand what people mean when they use so that. Do you, this is probably not helping anybody who's listening, but, um, you know. It, well, it is, it, it, yeah, but it is our podcast and we're just supposed to be meant for just like semi-ranting. The, the only reason I brought this the, I brought this up is, is because um, that kind of ties in with the neuromechanical matching and the triceps and the various arguments. That, that's how I got off on that tangent was um, because I think of force production as torque, generally. There's the turning yeah, force. <laughs> so like you're, there's, there's a measurement of torque that's going on there. Yeah, I mean, for me, torque is different from force because force is linear and torque is angular. So um, I'm kind of, because I've spent a lot of time in the biomechanics literature, I kind of like to differentiate those. I understand so, when hypertrophy researchers don't, and that's why I'm not particular about it. But for me, they are fundamentally very different. Because torque is a turning force. Correct. Right. So I, I think that sometimes the term force production is generic, but I understand. It is, absolutely, that. which is why I said I wait for context. That's why I was, exactly, that's why I brought that up, because I think the term force production, it gets thrown around a lot, and I always try to decipher, what are you talking about? There? Are you talking about torque, or are you talking about where the, some combination of leverage with, um, you see sure, where I'm going because, with this? No, I understand. Because if you were to say, "Well, how does triceps force production change across joint angles?" That would yes. be a length. Ten that would be a length tension question. Right. If you wanted to say, "How does 
um, triceps torque production change across the joint angle. That will be a leverage and a length tension question. There you go. Exactly. So, no, that's exactly how I think of it. Okay, so we're actually on the same page. That's what I was saying. <laughs> this, is, no, this is fairly basic biomechanics. Yes, exactly. So what I'm saying is sometimes when people say that's not force production, I'm like, well, let's define what we're talking about here. And I'm like, okay, are you talking about leverage which has to do with torque or are we talking about the cross bridging and where the where muscle has the greatest ability to produce force because those can all be different things yeah i mean in in my own head i use the word force to think of a muscle force and that's obviously got nothing to do with leverage except to the extent that the brain allocates activation to the muscle according to the principle of neuromechanical matching to me okay so to me force is different than leverage so maybe I contradicted myself by saying talking about torque there, but force is different than leverage. So I think we're actually saying the same thing because force has or, or torque um, and leverage have a, has a relationship, whereas yeah, actual so torque equals force times leverage. Force times basically. leverage uh, yeah. distance, yes. So um, torque and leverage kind of have this intertwined relationship, whereas actual force is where where can that muscle produce the greatest amount of force? And that has to do with the cross bridging that's going on. Which obviously then has to do with the length tension relationship. So yeah, right. basically that's why I said this one. This is where I think when you say force production, torque, leverage, force, all this kind of stuff, people enter like enter, like they mix these terms in together with each other and aren't always clearly defined. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it can get really kind of confusing for people, but ultimately, you know, leverage only matters if you're looking at joint torques. If you're looking at muscle forces, leverages aren't going to matter for a given level of muscle activation, um, but they do matter for allocation of by the process of neuromechanical matching for the activation from the brain. Yes. Okay. And that's kind of, I, they are all kind of intertwined. And like I said, the only reason I brought this up is because of the the tricep stuff. The reason I brought that up for the tricep stuff is the neuromechanical matching in the Mayo study, which always gets thrown out there. And that is if you have the triceps in an overhead position, they grow more there because there's an increase in um, force production out of the medial lateral head because the, the long head cannot produce as much significant force because it's at a disadvantage. And that's actually neuromechanical matching. Mm. Which we agree that's the case there with that one. What people have tried to do is argue that you get passive tension in the long head, which is even though the long head isn't activated in that overhead position due to neuromechanical matching. So they, on the one hand, they say the greater growth of the... So let me just back up a second. That <laughs> see, study do you showed, see how I tied this in? Do you see how that... Okay. That study showed that, study showed that, that particular recent tricep study that everyone likes to, to kind of shout about it showed that both the medial and lateral heads and the long head grow more in the overhead position. Right. And the stretch mediate hypertrophy aficionados, what they're arguing is that the medial and lateral heads grew more because long, um, because neuromechanical matching allocated more activation. Now, so far, I'm agreeing with them. Then they argue that the long head grew more because of passive tension. Well, you can't do that. You can't do that because passive tension will only occur when the muscle is activated. And if you just said the neuromechanical matching explains your medial and lateral heads, you can't then use passive tension to explain the long head because you haven't got passive tension because you haven't got activation. Why don't you have so, activation? 
because you've put it all in the median lateral heads due to neuromechanical matching. Because the long head has it has is decreased in leverage in that position, and if people combine a couple of different studies, looking that's why I brought up the triceps one. If they looked at the one study that looked at the um, internal moment arm for the triceps to extend the shoulder, and then they look at the other tricep study that looked at, like I said, I think they think they define it as force force production, but I think they mean torque. And then they look at the EMG and they put that across the triceps. In the overhead position, because there's a shoulder extension moment, then what happens is the long head gets pulled down more taut around the elbow and can't produce as much force uh, due to that that lack of leverage, right? So it doesn't have the leverage. It doesn't, it doesn't like, have leverage. I mean, the way I visualize it, the way I visualize it is that as you move the uh, shoulder overhead, then you're stretching the long head and making it thinner, and therefore it bulges out less from the bone, and the bulging out is the kind of the moment on. Yes, does more at the shoulder, but less at the. It at can the extend elbow. the shoulder more, more effectively in yes. that flex position, but yep. it's not an elbow uh, extension. That, that no, position. we're saying the same thing. There we it's, go. Yeah, and when the when the arm gets overhead, it, it the internal moment arm is created at the glenohumeral joint because it's kind of bulged out away from it, and that's how they measure when they when they have done the measurements to to look at that. They did it with electrostimulus to just say, hey, here's the internal moment arm, the long head in that overhead position to extend the shoulder. But as that happens, as you said, it gets pulled down and wrapped around kind of tight around the elbow, so it doesn't have good leverage to extend the elbow in that position. So this kills that whole study. Because if you have, if the long head has, we agree with the one thing about it, the well, medial it lateral does, head. What it does is it tells us that stretch mediated hypertrophy is not the reason why the overhead position was superior to the other position. It, What's it, funny, though, about that study is that it keeps being trotted out there by, by um, the... People who don't read the literature, basically. They didn't read it, though, because the researchers themselves say stretch can't be ruled out, but they don't say it happened because of that reason. They yeah, literally because, say that yeah. in the comments. They say that it can't be ruled out, but they say they not they're not sure why that the results happened the way they did. So I think everybody, everybody who has any understanding of the literature, even a relatively small amount of understanding, can look at that study and see that it it actually opens uh, raises more questions than it answers. I mean, I think that's probably the fairest. Yeah, it didn't right. answer. I don't think it answered anything because we have a multitude of other tricep studies that are all fit very well together that have been done over the course of a few decades that all had the same outcomes. So part of me for science is, is this repeatable? So if we do this again... Oh, yeah, it'd be amazing to see whether overhead positions have got some kind of quality of value. I mean, I've just kind of started digging into this. Uh, we're talking about whether posture affects activation. You know, and there's some really interesting data on that. I've got some FAQs coming out soon. But there's some really interesting ideas. Yeah, I saw ideas you posted, posted that one up. I think I sent, I sent you that one like a year or so ago. Wasn't it? Was it I've the, been collecting them. Yeah. Okay. Really the, was it the, the spinal cord with the motor neuron twins where it will change a potential degree of activation because of the arm position relative to the body and that there is is there's potential that it can increase motor unit recruitment because of the motor neurons? Yeah, this, it's worth kind of just looking at the mechanisms behind that, but that's probably for another day. I mean, that's um, an interesting, right? That's an interesting thing. It's like, and here's the thing, Chris, about this that a lot of people don't get. I don't think we're, we don't get credit for. If there is some, is, I'm serious. If there is like something that if everybody goes, this is wrong and you're wrong on this. And I'm like, well, then let's look into the data because if we can correct that, we totally will. Like, I'm not attached emotionally to any 
set of principles. If data comes out and says, here's what we actually find, and this is new, and this is what we're seeing, that's exciting to me. I will totally say that we have other things that we can look at to get particular results because I love to take all of this stuff and put it in the practical application setting and get it out of uh, my programming, the people in my groups and that kind of stuff. So it's if there's something that can change the model, I'm completely open to saying there's something out here that we're just learning well, about that can change the I mean, model. A, post, a postural effect on activation, a postural effect on routine recruitment would be an addition that fits into our existing model. It would basically say... It's not changing anything that exists. What it's saying is that you now have another variable, which is basically your posture when you're doing an exercise. Now, uh, we've talked about how stability demands can change activation. We've talked about how you know various other factors can affect activation, like motivation and all those kind of things. All we're doing is saying, and now we've got another one, which is posture. And the, the way that it seems to work, if it does work, seems to be mostly around whether your limb that you're exercising is above or below the level of the heart. Yeah. If it's above the level of the heart, potentially, potentially, and this is very, very, very tenuous at the moment, you may get a slightly higher level of activation. Now, if that can be demonstrated and verified and looked at in various ways, then maybe that would explain this tricep study. Now, I'm not 100% on board with the idea because the other studies don't show the same thing. That, but, that would be my only thing i would be like well, why didn't we yeah, exactly. see this in the other ones exactly so but you know nevertheless there's some interesting stuff there and if it is were you know sort of something that turns out to be a factor then obviously it can affect a lot of other things like leg pressing and you know calf raises and all kinds of stuff could be interesting you know so it doesn't just have like a very minor implication it actually has some really interesting uh, substantial ones but as I say, very, very early days on that stuff. And I would absolutely not start rewriting my training programs for, you know, <laughs> kind of maximizing that particular it, I think variable it's just... at the present time. So, you know, kind of just being really clear here, that I don't think it's meaningful. Um, but, you know, potentially it's worth looking at. Okay, so we're pushing over two hours now. And on the, on the wrap up here, Shall we try and just do the kind of very, very quick final segment? The That's time what I was saying. So on the, ra on the wrap up here, and you have the whole article going over everything super, super in depth. I really, really encourage everybody to get out there to uh, read this. You clearly you did a lot of work on it. Uh, I mean, I think it's probably the longest art article for Medium you've ever done. It's not? You did one longer than this? Doms is way longer than this. Doms is longer than this. I went. Through, I remember the Doms article. I don't feel like it was. I feel like this one's. How long is the Doms article in terms I, I of reading time? I think it's. I think it's. Um, from memory, it's maybe eleven or twelve thousand words, which is this is clocking in at eight thousand five hundred. I think. Okay, so it's pretty close. Either way, uh, eight thousand word article is a big article. Eight thousand. This is honestly should be a PubMed uh, review. Um, in my opinion, because this, like what you did with this particular Medium article, really, really encompasses this part of the model. As far as like stretch mediated hypertrophy, redefining hypertrophy, and then what adaptations we get from stretch, and then what separates those adaptations from uh, contraction mediated hypertrophy, and then um, just kind of everything that we that we went over and. I think that the other part that's missing is we touched on briefly is when people talk about these length and partials or stretch media hypertrophy or any of that kind of stuff, 
since we're talking, we're not talking about static stretching in any of these. This is this is a really important part. Is that the neuromechanical matching part is a massive thing to proceed whether or not you're going to get any of that anyway. Because if you don't have leverage, then you're going not going to have activation, then you're not going to have tension. So if you have very low degrees of activation, you're going to have very low degrees of tension. But the other thing is that we've, we've again, gone over many times, is that during the lowering portion of any string training exercises, at best, you're going to be looking at somewhere around 50-ish degrees of activation compared to the concentric portion. So you're still, even for the muscles that have leverage in the eccentric portions of basically dynamic repetitions like you're doing in the gym, you're still... I, th I think the compounding factor there that happens and why stretch media hypertrophy only goes on for a short period of time is the, the two reasons. Number one, sarcomerogenesis, and number two is in regular strength training exercises, you're working through specific ranges of motion, and during those ranges of motion, your degrees of activation is relatively low. So that's kind of a kind of a putting all of those together as to why I don't know why people are going crazy over, over this. They, I, I will also I think pretty sure and i went through i think it was probably 15 of the studies and i just kind of stopped after a while they were all on novice untrained subjects well there will be i mean because ultimately um you know as we've seen in in some of the more trained subjects uh when they've when they've done fascicle length measurements in trained subjects we tend not to see much they don't do anything increase. you have another one you have another one that you sent me it was pretty cool and you I think one of my favorite exchanges that we have is when you'll send me something or I'll send you something and we just say, let me know when you see it. And we don't, we just want to make sure that, and you send me one, you're like, let me know when you see it. And it was in this graph and it was, it was trained subjects and untrained subjects in a leg study. And then I went down, I was looking at the graphs and they started off. Regional with, hypertrophy. Wasn't yes, it? it was regional hypertrophy. And in the trained subjects, the amount of distal growth was way up there and it was all at the same length. And then the, the amount of distal growth in untrained subjects was very low. And then the as, you, as you plotted throughout the study, the, the, the distal growth in the untrained subjects. The distal growth all happened in the untrained subjects. No, no, no. no. I'm that... saying when they started. Oh, when, when they, they started. When they, they started, started they, when they did the measurements, yeah. they, yeah, the yeah. measurements for the distal yes. growth in the trained subjects, yeah. they was, it was very high. It was, yeah, it and was. it was very low in the, in the untrained. And then yes. as you yes. plot through the whole course of the study, which is a very long one, it was like 16 or 30 weeks or something. It was pretty, pretty long when they plotted the measurements they did them every, every couple of weeks. Um, the untrained subjects, distal hypertrophy just really shot off the charts. And then the trained subjects just right. It was just like almost a straight line across the board. Nothing happened. And generally now that they didn't do fat. I don't think they did fast link measurements in that study. They did. They, it was a regional hypertrophy measurements they did. But the interesting part about that one is that when sarcomerogenesis happens, it's always in the distal region. So I thought it was a super interesting thing to see that it fit in very nicely with all of the other studies that have looked at fascicle link measurements with untrained and trained. And in trained subjects, we don't see fascicle link measurements increase. Sometimes we see a decrease depending on how they set up the, the training program. Um, and in untrained subjects, we always see massive fascicle length increases very quickly. So, um, but I also have to come back and say, distal hypertrophy also does not always mean stretch mediated hypertrophy either, because we have studies where we have distal hypertrophy occur, but not fascicle length increases. So, those are distinctions to be made. 
and wrapping this up, uh, like, what do you feel like is like the closing statement that that kind of encompasses like this whole like almost two and a half hours here? Um, as we said at the beginning, after we'd done our kind of um, preliminary ramble, um, there is stretch mediated hypertrophy caused by stretching a muscle fiber, and there is contraction mediated hypertrophy caused by the actin myosin crossbridge formations that produce force. One is going to produce sarcomeriogenesis. The other one is going to produce myofibular addition. Um, when you're doing a strength training exercise at a long muscle length, you're going to get both of those happening. You've got to have a way of figuring out what hypertrophy is coming from one place and what hypertrophy is coming from the other place. What we've done today is explain that you can do that with muscle fascicle length increases, which represent sarcomeriogenesis, because that is your stretch mediated hypertrophy. So as we've been saying for you know however many months or even years now, um, your stretch mediated <laughs> hypertrophy is your muscle fascicle length measurement. So if you're not getting an increase in muscle fascicle length, you're not getting sarcomeriogenesis, you're not getting stretch mediated hypertrophy. So when people are getting agitated and saying that I'm being kind of really dogmatic about this, about the idea that stretch mediated hypertrophy is muscle fascicle length. Yes, I'm doubling down. Absolutely. <laughs> that is exactly what it is. And if you don't think that, then you're out of touch with what the literature says. That's that's literally my position on this. I'm not I'm not kind of messing around with it. Yeah. It's you that's the problem, not me. You know what? There's a, a bodybuilder guy that I, I talked to. I really like him. He's a young guy, but he's interested. And I explained all this stuff to him once. And he said, he goes, he goes, he goes, oh, he goes, so I just need to look and see if they did a fascicle length measurement in the pre and post. And then I'll know if they were stretch media hypertrophy. And I was like, I had that one of those like moments, those proud father moments. I was like, yes, that's it. That's it. And he goes, oh, and then. So whenever, uh, so like a study, he was looking at this study. He goes, look at this. He goes, people said this is stretch media hypertrophy, but there's no fascicle length increase. So it's not. And I'm like, yeah. So there's some people that are actually getting it, but you can make it very simplified. But that's why when you post up the studies and say no fascicle length increases were here, so there's no stretch media hypertrophy. We don't need to know if there was a short position movement done to contrast that. It's possible a short position movement could produce less hypertrophy in those situations or it could produce more. We don't know. That's the whole neuromechanical matching and linked attention relationship discussions. But we have, as we talked about, a model to determine that. So, in, yeah, in closing, I think it's pretty simple, like you said, in doubling down from here on out, unless there's some major increase in all of the data that has already existed for a couple of decades now. When we're talking about stretch-mediated hypertrophy, we're talking about very specific type of adaptations, and we have very specific ways to measure whether they occurred and use them as a proxy. Yep. So I think that's it. Okay. I hope. Hopefully, we don't have to revisit this topic um, again anytime soon, unless it's just something to the case where. Um, oh, real quick before we close out. Um, this is what I'll say because people ask this every time this topic comes up. Just go real quickly up and down the list. What muscles do you feel like you probably can, even as a noob, get get stretch media hypertrophy from? Again, we're talking about 
fascicle length increasements where we're talking about longitudinal hypertrophy. I'm going to just keep saying that over and over again. So what muscles, what muscles will, do you feel like will you will benefit? Will benefit. Will, yeah, will benefit from it. Yep. Glutes, hamstrings, um, quads, and pecs are my absolute definite in that category. Okay. That's so. absolutely definitely. I mean, there may be one or two others that are going to be kind of responsive, but I would, I would be absolutely definitive about those. About those. So basically, the lower body impacts. If people want to use that as a way to remember, that's fine. But I wouldn't say the calves are on my kind of list of. I definites. was trying to let you off the hook. Because, well, I'm happy to talk about the fact that I think the calf literature is quite confusing at the moment. But, you know, ultimately... You know, think, people get really upset. I I don't know if this is like a blessing or a curse. When we don't have an answer, they get upset. Because generally they expect us to have all the answers. And they don't know behind the scenes that you and I share so much gastroc stuff. And we're like, what the hell is going on with the calves? We don't very, know. Very, very confusing. This, this, this is it's like... Literally, half the literature points us in one direction, and the other half points us in a totally different direction. And we're kind of looking at it going, "This makes no sense." So, you know, if people want to figure out a new model that involves what do you, making what do you sense think of the literature, go for okay, it. so we have to touch. We do have to touch on this real quick. I meant to wrap up, but we do. We didn't touch on the calves. The, the people say over and over, the calves benefit from stretch media hypertrophy. I don't think that's what's occurring. I think it's a combination of the active length tension relationship and um, changes in, 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 in the leverage. So um, basically, the gastroc has a very uh, strange length tension relationship and a very strange um, leverage where basically the two of them combine to produce peak forces in the stretch position. So it has best leverage in the stretch position, probably, and it has definitely best active length tension relationship plateau in that same stretch position so it's going to get a really big response from being trained in the stretch position uh, in comparison with the soleus so um, i would kind of explain most of what's going on by that model and that fits with everything that we've been talking about generally we, we know is, this we know this much okay let's, let's talk about what we do know with the calves the short position doesn't do anything the contractile sure. position for the calves for the gastroc you there's we have i think two studies now showing very clearly that the in, in fact the the one showed atrophy when they were held in the contracted position for while doing exercises they actually continued to shrink along with the rest of the body the the, the quads grew for people going what the hell you're talking about they did a leg press with people who were like sedentary uh, i think it was even bedridden and then they had them do a leg press but in the leg press they were in uh they were in a uh plantar flex position so the calves were shortened and their calves actually shrunk over the course of the month even though their quads grew um you just posted up an infographic on a calf study where they did it was length and partials and um versus like uh, i think it was shortened partials and then full range of motion i want to say it was all three wasn't it in that particular gastroc study was it all three but it was basically a plantar flex to back to zero degrees that produced the greatest amount of growth in the calves. And that, that mirrors a lot what we've seen with the stretch studies. I want to say that was it. Why are you making that face? Because I'm just thinking about how this probably is going to balloon into a really long discussion because it's the calves are complicated and there's data that points in all kinds of different directions. And I don't think we can really do it justice. So what I was going to say was, is that two different studies where they've measured the working sarcomere length of the gastroc in both of those studies, they sat almost purely on the ascending limb. Which is, as I said, it's got a really, really weird length. That's really, no, there's, there's not a single other muscle in the body that 
appears to have that. Not that we've really ever seen. shouldn't do that. So <laughs> what's going on is really, really unclear. Now, um, the moment, I'm just like, I, I can't explain what's going on. One of the things on the I don't think people think understand that we do either is that when we look at all of this stuff, we also look at just the body in terms of movement, at like how the body moves and what it does and what that's good for. Because everything from like, why do the quads do this? I'm like, well, they do that because of sitting down and standing up. And you're like, oh, that makes sense. So when we look at linked attention relationships, we look at normal anatomical movement, body movement, standing up, running, all this kind of stuff. And we're like, this makes sense because of these particular motions. With the calves, none of the stuff that we have really makes a lot of sense to us. So we get very upset because we're like, why did this work this way? Because I don't, that doesn't make any sense. So why the calves seem to only grow at stretch doesn't actually fit with everything we see. As you said, Part of the data starts sending us in one direction, and then we say, okay, well, that's why this happens. And then part of the data will say something else, and we're like, well, that doesn't make sense with this other data. No, so why do the calves grow better at longer lengths since that's not really passive tension? Well, as I said, the basic model that I'm working with at the moment says that they only reach, the gastroc only reaches... Um, a plateau on the length tension relationship at that long length, but it also gets a benefit relative to the soleus because of neuromechanical matching. Just to be clear, when people are, if you're using neuromechanical matching to explain some results, neuromechanical matching will only tell you where the hypertrophy happens. You can't use neuromechanical matching to explain why an overall muscle group grows yes. more in certain positions than others. I've heard people say, you know, they're talking about like, you know, the entirety of the elbow flexor muscle group or the entirety of the triceps brachy muscle group and they're saying well neuromechanical matching says it's got best leverage here therefore it should grow more here no it doesn't work like that um, neuromechanical matching just moves activation around from one place to another it doesn't right. limit the amount of activation we can have A regional overall. regional hypertrophy and neuromechanical matching are different things so if we are looking at the calves as a whole and talking about soleus plus gastroc, then neuromechanical matching is largely irrelevant because all you're doing is moving hypertrophy from one muscle to another. But if you're just measuring gastroc, then the gastroc will grow more in the stretch position because it has better leverage. It has better leverage. So you kind of got these two factors going on. If you like just talking about gastrocs, then sure, leverage is going to matter. If, you, if you're talking about the whole of the uh, calf muscle complex, then the gastroc may still grow better at that long length because it may actually be an active insufficiency when you're training at shorter lengths. So ultimately, you've got two things going on here, and I think the active insufficiency is probably the bigger factor um, insofar as we tend to see that seated position not really working the gastroc very much at all. Okay. So at the end of the day, the truth is, is like right now we just have we, – we need more data on the, on the gastroc. Well, I think – there's, 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 there's kind of like fundamental inconsistencies in, in the literature regarding what the gastroc is doing because we shouldn't really be able to create stretch-mediated hypertrophy in the gastroc um, if it's mainly on the ascending lower of the length tension relationship. So I think ultimately we've got some conflicts going on within what we so, use as our But mode. I want to be clear here. This is really important to the rest of the discussion. Maybe we should have brought this up earlier. And that is this, when we see the calves grow, the gastroc, when I'm talking about the calves, when we see the gastroc grow 
from like these where they put people in boots and they hold the stretch position for an hour a day or you know they're loaded at a load like a stretch position then that is i think plays a part in these people saying that um well that wouldn't play a part in the stretch can overcome leverage thing because it's opposite the gastroc has better leverage than the soleus there but what i'm saying is this gets a, a kind of said that this is stretch mediated hypertrophy but again when we talk about that we're talking about a very specific type of adaptation that is not the adaptation we feel like that we're seeing here with the gastro hang on a sec we've just kind of crossed from talking about strength training studies to now talking about static stretching studies and so i'm, I'm so kind of... okay so in a static stretching study do you feel like that the well, the, you haven't got any activation, so the only type of hypertrophy you can produce is sarcomeridogenesis. That's what I'm saying. There's an inconsistency between the sarcomeridogenesis that we're seeing in, or fascicle length increases we're seeing in the calf muscle literature for those studies. But if you then look at the, um, the kind of strengthening studies and the leverage and, and various active length tension relationship studies that have been done, yes. that doesn't fit. So you've got these two sources of data which don't fit with each other at the moment because you shouldn't be able to have one and not and, and, so and the, the other. So even time. in the static stretching studies, if the the working sarcomere length is entirely on the ascending limb. How is it getting to the descending limb? Exactly. It shouldn't be giving those <laughs> results. This is the problem at the moment with the calf muscle literature. It doesn't make any sense. So You, sell where, some, you see what I'm, I'm asking with no, that, right? right. I'm like, okay. If somebody wants to go away and figure out why this isn't working the way we expect it to, then that's fantastic because then we'll be able to integrate that into the existing model and explain what's happening. But you're not going to overturn the way that the length tension relationship works, the way that sarcomerogenesis works, the way that, you know. So what's, happening, of, so what's happening in calf stretching? We don't know. We don't, that's what I thought too. So, I, that's okay to say we don't know. Like, that's what I thought too. Because we, we've seen it, we have actually seen that both in trained and untrained subjects. Now I will say this, whenever they say trained subjects and calf stuff, I just bat my... Trained? Training status is irrelevant for static stretching studies. Yes, because of what we talked about earlier. Because we're, we're it's not the same as comparing strength training studies. People don't seem to get that. We're not talking about the same things. I had to bring up the, the gastro. The because... reason it's irrelevant is because if you do a strength training program and you produce fascicle length increases, those fascicle length increases are only happening in the muscle fibers that relate to the muscle fibers that are activated in yep. the strength training exercise you've just done. Yep. If you do a static stretch, you're now stretching every single fiber in the muscle. Yes. It's like, an, it's like even more effective than an eccentric training. You exercise. know, so it's, a, it's an interesting... You're talking about different muscle fibers here. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, right? Because of the calcium sensitivity to the fibers that become active, right? You don't really see that as much. That's not a, that's not a thing with static stretching either. So, um, I, I was bringing that up because that is something that's still, that's included at part of the length and partials and stretch media hypertrophy group is that we have all these calf studies and I think that helped muddy the waters. Yeah, but ultimately if we, if we ignore the active, if we, if we look at, if we say the, maybe it's the active length tension relationship that's incorrect. I mean, maybe there's something that we haven't understood about that. I don't know. But ultimately, they're still behaving the same way. We're still seeing fascicle length increases, our primary form of hypertrophy, you know. Um, we're still seeing 
you know, that sort of response happening, which actually we would expect in a, I mean, like the strength training literature shows that we don't get fast increases in trained people, but the static stretching literature, according to our model that we've been talking to today, it should actually display that effect because we're actually training muscle fibers that we previously haven't trained because that's what a static stretch does. Does, it trains yes, the entirety true. of the muscle. So people kind of show me those studies. They go, oh, look, you know, your your statement about trained people not experiencing stretch-mediated hypertrophy after strength training is invalidated by this static stretching no, study. No, I, didn't, well, think, I didn't think that when it came out because... No, to be, what I've said. No, I was going to say, I didn't think that. I thought that was weird that people said that when that happened. I'm like, but we're static stretching is not the same as strength training with the trained subjects. Those are two different things. You're actually training different muscle fibers when you do a static stretch yes. from the lowering phase of a strength training exercise. You're stretching the different. whole muscle, okay? So there's you have you're you're training different fibers than you get. Like you have a select set of fibers that you're training in strength training exercises, where you're basically training the whole muscle and static stretching. So I, they're not comparable. It's two different things. You can get at similar adaptations from stretch, but the same adaptations from stretch. But we don't know what's going on with the cows at the end of the day. That's the, we, Absolutely we don't, not. They, we don't. they definitely are a, a source of Do you of, think of that the, this could also be extrapolated out into the forearm stuff since we've always joked about the, the fact that calves and forearms both appear to be genetic and that there could be something weird with the forearm muscles? Well, that, the interesting thing is if you look at the length tension relationship studies into the calf muscles, there are some outliers who don't fit the length tension relationships of everybody else. So the average is that you do get uh, mostly people are working on the, on the ascending limb. But then there's some outliers that are maybe close to the plateau. And then there's even the odd outlier who's I was going to say, so oh, wait, wait, I was going to say when you brought that up in the, the, the study I was talking about earlier with the leg press, it, it's a very weird thing to go look at because most of the people are on the ascending limb, but there are people that get to the plateau. And generally, we don't see that. It's very standardized in the length tension relationship across all the other muscle groups. And when you sent me that one a long time ago, I remember looking at it going, thinking it was weird because we generally do not see that in sarcomere length, working sarcomere length studies. It's pretty standard. Everybody's going to be fit in right here with this kind of one, one link that we have. But with the cast one, I was like, there's a few people, and it wasn't even just like one. It was like a few, not like half, but it was it was fairly mixed. So most everyone was on the ascending limb, but there were a few people that got into the plateau of varying lengths. And I, I remember think there was at least one who was on the descending limb. Yes, well. yeah, there that. was like one on the descending limb. It was very weird to look at. It, the calves are the only one I've ever seen look like that. And, and so it, it could have to be that there is a genetic component with the length tension relationship with people with calves too, or there's some other, just some other stuff going on. So I, I think at this point we need more gastroc research. I don't know what it is that we're going to look at though, because I, I do think from more. Well, that's really, it. I don't know what it is we're going to look at. Because I don't know what it, we look at. I really don't know what we look at because uh, we'd have to look at, I mean, we have fascicle link measurements. We have working sarcomere link measurements. We have boot studies that went on for an hour a day. We have loaded stretching stuff. So it does appear, though, that if you want to grow the calves, if you have any hope of growing your calves, you're going to want to train them at a longer length. Well, that much is very clear. Um, <laughs> but why that's happening is, as I say, um, not entirely clear at the present time. I think, as I say, my, if, if, if I'm asked 
to give the answer, it's because of the active length tension relationship. But acknowledging that that then and some factor fit. to do with the leverage of the gas truck relative to the solar sure, sure. that Acknowledging that that then doesn't fit with why the gas truck also grows after static stretching because that doesn't make sense. All right, I'll probably make a post on that this week because that's one of the things people have said contributes to the whole length and partial or partials, but it doesn't but actually. I guess really, we've put this model together based on the literature, which is not really contentious. We're popularizing existing um, yes. research. That's a good way We're of putting it. We're actually popularizing research that has existed for a long time. Yes. And, you know, a lot to, as you brought to people's attention by the, by the quote that you read um, at the beginning, you know, this is definitely the position of many other researchers. Many parts of this model are other views of, of many other researchers. It's yes. not contentious in the way that people are arguing. Um, if if you have an alternative model that explains everything perhaps as well or even better than what we've done, please write it down and present it to people because all I'm hearing at the moment is the repeated statement that muscles grow longer, grow better at longer lengths. I'm not hearing any explanation for why that is. I'm not hearing any physiology. I'm not hearing any detail other than the repeated statement. So if you want to be taken seriously, then put a model together and present it. Otherwise, your ideas are basically just going to disappear when the latest fashion disappears, because that's what it is. Length and partials is a fashion. It is. Disappear like the high volumes are now disappearing, you know, and it's disappear <laughs> like all the other stuff. It tried to, make, it tried to make a resurgence with that 52 set study. It tried to make a, a resurgence. And I think there's... Sure, but it is, it's on the way down. It's on the yeah. way down in terms of popularity. And, you know, if you just care about your 15 minutes of fame, then great. Okay go for it but if you actually kind of want to contribute to this uh you know industry in a meaningful way then and you actually think that this model we've presented is incorrect then please go ahead write something down or explain it in a way that actually fits with physiology and i'd be delighted to read it and and perhaps even learn from it but i'm not hearing anything at the present time so i'm just going to stick with the model that i've got all right. I'm going to attach the Medium article into the notes of the podcast. I, I, I think the biggest challenge is that you and I are giving to everyone else now at this point, and that's the way I would present it out there. It's a challenge. Um, the challenge is this, is that if you have a way, if you have data that can explain stretch-mediated hypertrophy in the way that it's kind of being espoused as is a uh, stretch-mediated hypertrophy is just greater amounts of hypertrophy and you have a model that explains what that is then bio somehow it has to exclude contraction mode hypertrophy well i'm not even kind of making conditions at this point i'm just asking for somebody to kind of produce a model put up or shut up I'm, i mean it's like you know I'm, I'm, I'm just i'm just kind of bored with reading people making the same claim without giving any no kind of basis. The, the thing that's really that has really just got on my last nerve about this is i'm like well then just show me something and then they say length and partials grew a bunch of noobs hamstrings better than a full range of motion i'm like that doesn't tell us anything I, tell I me why tell me why, why it happened why that happened and once they explain why that happened it's pretty much game over so I want to hear. I want to hear the mechanism. I want yes. to understand what the can you explain is. the mechanism. I don't care about a bunch of studies in a row. On this is a part I don't think they freaking get. 
I don't give a shit about 20 studies done on noobs doing length and partials and then them saying, oh, we got more hypertrophy this way. Explain the mechanism that caused it. It's almost those like studies, those studies fit perfectly. Into yes, with everything we've it's said. Almost like they think, it's almost like they think that we're trying to argue those <laughs> studies away. It's like, no, those studies fit perfectly into the model that we've got. And so does this additional ton of data that we've also got over here. We're like, your kind of tiny area of literature that you keep shrieking about is just a tiny little part of the model that we've we, got we're all of like, this no, other we're data. We're not even there. actually arguing with you. No, like we're not. The, no, and we, in fact, we're here's what we'll do. We'll at least explain to you why that happened. But exactly. here's your thing: if you're going to say that that is the best way to train, and that people are going to get ten or fifteen percent extra muscle mass, that even when they're trained doing that way, you don't have anything that points to that. They're extrapolating from their data horribly yes. in a way that's not valid based on the physiology. Physiology predicts that's not possible. They are trying to make a claim that flies in contradiction to the other data that we've got and that's why we're trying to explain how it works i'm still waiting for them to, to i present think if anything model. i think if anything chris if you understand the physiology <laughs> adding a bunch of length and partials to the end of your set after you've already hit task failure is probably more detrimental to your training than productive yeah, I mean, we didn't get on to talking about the fatigue side of the equation. We, co we covered. I think we covered probably, that in the length and partial ones, but I don't. Do I really don't think. Uh, I don't think an advanced person is going to benefit very much, if at all. If anything, I think it would be more detrimental. So, and with that, we'll wrap it up. As I told everybody, I'm going to put your medium article, and then the challenge to anybody out there who's running around with this length and partial stuff. Explain the mechanisms that's causing this and why an advanced person would benefit from them, not based off of a bunch of studies done on noobs, but on mechanisms done on trained lifters. Is that the best way I could put that? Yeah, we want to know why it works. If it doesn't work the way we've explained it, tell us why it works, how it works, and why you can extrapolate from your untrained studies to trained studies based on the mechanisms you're, you're, you're claiming um, kind of explain the phenomenon. Absolutely. All right. That's it for today's podcast. Anybody who hung in for almost a full three hours, we appreciate you. And I also want to say a big thanks because the podcast has been blowing up, getting a lot of exposure. And I think that says a lot. For a while there, I used to harp on all the little broccoli heads and talk about uh, how they're just on TikTok. But I got to be honest with you, Chris. I really, I see so many young dudes now that really enjoy this stuff and talk about it. You predicted this two years ago and you said this, you said, I think we will raise the bar a standard for what guys know about physiology and biomechanics and all this kind of stuff within the next couple of years. And, and it will be so much higher as just per the foundation of what they know. And I've already seen it happen. It's been really cool. It's been really cool. So I, I see so many young guys now that love this area and love this field. And I feel very fortunate. I think that we've, we've been a big part of that. Uh, and they've really helped blow up the podcast. So for everybody who's hung out this long and goes through our um, kind of um, – I did uh, the podcast with Matthew. He had me on a really good guide. He says, hearing you talk is like somebody opening up a uh, fire hydrant and just like the, the water, like the water, like trying to drink all of that. And, and I have like, that's just a normal conversation for me and Chris at this point. So, But I think those guys have raised their game and they're really trying. 
and um, it's very cool to see. So for everybody who's uh, subscribed to the podcast and has kind of kind of gone out there and helped promote it and that kind of stuff, we appreciate you. We do. All right, Chris, until next time, uh, I'll see you then, buddy.